Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, the show where we talk to founders, investors, and entrepreneurs, making a difference in this region, in this world. Today's episode, just like many of our guests, is a global guest. While he is originally American-Korean, we managed to work together in Vietnam, but he is now based in Paris, building a cryptocurrency startup that happens to be funded by the likes of Consensus, which is a blockchain company whose founder is the founder of the Ethereum token, and other VCs like SOSV and Emergo. The main chapters in this episode discuss the Asian American identity, which nicely ties back to episode 17 with Yorlin Ung, where we touch upon women in leadership and juggling multiple identities. If you're interested, go ahead and check that out too. In the next chapter, we discuss Justin's early career in corporate, where we learn about working in North Asia and comparing those experiences from Japan, Korea to Southeast Asia. Towards the middle, we discuss how Justin transitioned from corporate into Rocket Internet, where we both worked and were a part of the founding team of Zalora, and discuss hiring for venture-funded businesses and when you should bootstrap or hire more. After Rocket Internet, interestingly enough, Justin discusses his choice to return back to business school, which he postponed, and somehow after his MBA, returned back to startups and venture building, where he then discusses his first seeded company in the printing space that sort of worked out, but eventually led him to founding a different company, Quidly, a cryptocurrency wallet, which is easy and convenient to use if you're interested in getting your feet wet in the crypto space. For the last section, we discuss cryptocurrency and Quidly and the nature of cryptocurrency, where it's headed, the next evolutions of fiat to digitalization, and much more. As usual, feel free to skip around the topics if your app platform allows it. Let's dive right in. All right, Justin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm excited. This is my first kind of um, podcast-style interview. Um, yes, I'm, done, I'm like, very excited too. Interview uh, before, but never online. Yeah, so the first long-form podcast, right? Uh, yeah. So today we have just Justin on, right? Yep. Co-founder uh, and CEO of a company called Quidly, right? So yeah. I guess we'll, we'll get to that later, what that is. Uh, but I guess uh, to start off, brief intro, uh, I guess you could say we were once enemies, uh, turned friends now, right? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say we were enemies, but sure. Yeah, well, I mean, there was some uh, animosity at certain points, but we always friction, managed to work yeah. together somehow. There was friction. Um, you know, I, I guess if for anyone watching video, you, you can see, you know, he looks kind of like a, a K-drama pop star almost uh, <laughs> on a good day with some makeup. He's quite how, – how tall are you? Uh, 183 centimeters. Yeah, there like you go. Yeah, so, so with some good posture, you know, looks like a, a K-drama star. You can see <laughs> LinkedIn's the same the picture. Very good. Uh, he's a father of two uh, beautiful children, right? Uh, they're cute. <laughs> beautiful, yeah. I don't know, but they're cute. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say things like that about your kids. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, you know, like you see, like, baby magazines and they're, like, really beautiful children. I feel like my kids really? are, like, more on the cute oh, side. Those are, those are models, yeah. I don't know. I don't find I don't find babies that cute anyway. So I mean, I'm like, just, we're, just, we're just saying terrible things right now. Uh, yeah, yeah. You speak what? You speak four or five languages? Um, well, I guess how, how do you define speak, right? Um, obviously, I speak English very well. Uh, my Korean is pretty good. It's native. Uh, I would say it's native. My wife sometimes yeah. will say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, my Japanese is decent. Although I'd, since I haven't been in Asia for the past six years and rarely speak it anymore, um, mm, I yeah. feel like so I, I live in France. I don't know if you're going to say that, but um, yeah. Um, 
my French is probably the weakest of all my languages, but just because I've been living here for like seven years now, um, it kind of seeps over a lot of things now. Like sometimes I'll try to speak Japanese with Japanese people and um, a French word will come out or, um, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's some of the problems when you learn so many languages. I, I mean, I'm not nowhere as skillful in, in, on my other languages, but, but I do, if I'm trying to speak another language, yeah, like other words will come up. So that yeah. makes sense. Uh, so we, we, we can follow you on Twitter, right? Uh, A H N on underscore going ongoing. Oh, I get it now. I was going to, I, I was trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? It's like ongoing, but ongoing. Okay. Yeah, A H N. Okay. Uh, you changed that recently, right? Uh, what do you mean? I think you had a different handle before. Was it, was it always ongoing? It was always, I mean, I only started Twitter like two years ago and it's always oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And actually I know I was reading them last night and they are quite nice. They're not like a lot of people say like crazy stuff, like, Either it comes off narcissistic, out of yeah. touch, or but like I think yours is pretty grounded, so it's quite nice. I think worth. Well, I think it's it's fortunate that I started Twitter much, much, much later. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. True, 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 true. Here you'd see some horrible things, but like I mean, <laughs> started when I was already yeah. with a kid, so like um, you know, perspective, I guess. <laughs> becoming a father, becoming an adult. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And generally, like, uh, I mean, today we are, like, most people know, um, saying crazy things on social media generally tends not to get you good things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely not. Well, it depends. Some people like bad PR, right? They say P all PR is PR, Yeah. So. <laughs> I haven't reached um, that stage yet. Maybe, we'll <laughs> yeah. Maybe with more success, you will, you'll give less of, uh, you know, yeah. care what other people think. Uh, you're also a bit of an artist, right? You have the same uh, handle for Instagram, and you post really beautiful photos of Paris all the time. I'm really jealous. Mm. Uh, that, that's something you picked up a few years ago, or maybe four, five say, plus years ago, I think. Yeah. yeah, I feel like Instagram is really what turned me on to social media a lot more. Like, I wasn't yeah. like a big social media guy before. Um, yeah. Uh, but um, I really appreciated the visual i wouldn't call myself an artist but i it's yeah. more the city of paris that's beautiful that i can just snap <laughs> anything and it looks great yeah. um but uh, i don't know i guess the visual aspect of it appealed to me a lot more compared to like facebook or twitter where you'd have to say something or mm -hmm. <laughs> like you feel yeah, yeah. i see what something. you mean okay yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's less it's more my style i guess to just visually um i like it express more yourself to be able to visually express yeah Okay, but that's you fair. can yeah follow me on Instagram if you'd like. You I really think it's public, will. right? I think it's public. So yeah, it's public. You'll just see yeah, pictures yeah. of the city occasionally. My family. Yeah, but more more importantly, you also have a company Twitter, which is the the Quidly protocol, which is Q U I D L I Quidly and protocol, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Please uh, cool. follow us. Actually, it's more important that you use us, but sure, follow. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I mean, you know, you got to get them in, get them interested, and then maybe. You know, if they're converted over to which we'll talk later, the crypto space, the cryptocurrency space, then yeah, definitely join, right? Um, so I, I wanted to talk about you first personally, and I think I'm gonna like anyone who's my friend who's like Asian American. I definitely want to talk about some of these topics. Um, so also to get to know you better and for the audience, uh, you are American born. Well, no, sorry, you're Korean born or American born? No, I was born in the U.S. Actually. Okay, so you're American born Korean from Maryland. Uh, yeah, I was born in New York, but I pretty much grew up. Uh, grew up in, in Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. Okay. Do you, so do you feel any relation to New York, or just more home in Maryland is like more home? 
Um, I mean, if I'm honest, like Maryland is more home, but like, you know, when you grow up, I mean, when you're a kid or not even like you're, I guess what one, I lived there till I was seven. So, um, you get a, uh, you develop, I guess it was where I developed some early things. Like, um, I, I, I wear an Orioles cap today, but like, just cause I don't <laughs> feel like I can justify wearing a Yankees cap, but like my first baseball games were in Yankee stadium, things like that. Yeah. And yeah. like you grew up like eating New York pizza and stuff like that. So yeah. like, I mean, part, and my father was there for like 20 years or something like that. So he feels, he, even though he's now been in Maryland for like 20 plus years, I, he always feels like he's a New Yorker at heart. Ah, okay. So okay. that, that part kind of seeps into me. Ah, that's interesting. There's even more identity dynamics going on of, of, of where you come from. And I guess for our Asian audience, uh, the Orioles is the, the, the baseball team for Maryland or? Yeah, the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, yeah. The Baltimore were, Orioles. The, when I first moved there, it was actually a really good dynamic. They were good and, you know, they were fighting for the um, American League East pennant with the Yankees often. Uh, mm. But frankly speaking, since the 90s, they've just been terrible. And um, <laughs> uh, it's more, you know, just kind of association from where you're from that keeps me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's very American thing, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was never really into sports. So I, that, like my family was not into that. So I, I, I missed that cultural aspect. Sure. Um, just baseball, though. First, like, American yeah. football, I have no – I don't care anything. Like the Washington yeah. Redskins or whatever they're called now, like that doesn't yeah. bother me. Like the Ravens, I don't really care. But baseball has always been a big thing. Yeah, but but I guess also for, for your part of the world and my part of the world now uh, – Football or American soccer, right? Oh, soccer. That's probably the, the 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 big thing, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's not something I really got into. So even though I, I'm in Europe now, like <laughs> it really doesn't interest me when people talk about it. Um, yeah. you know the big yeah, things yeah, like yeah. Um, in Paris, like when Neymar came here, or um, who who was another big player? I mean, all the French, I guess, like Pogba and uh, Mbappe and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, it doesn't excite me as much as like a good game of baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So for, for the first question, what does it mean to be uh, an ABK American born Korean? You know, um, that's an interesting question. I think that you could probably say a lot of things um, that would just go mm-hmm. like on forever. Um, yeah. For you. Think, yeah. Frankly speaking, I don't know. I, I never really thought of it much as a kid. Um mm-hmm. I'd been pretty, I feel, um, uh, like privileged, I guess it's a weird word to say today. I, I, I was lucky, I guess. Um, I grew up in an area that was, uh, fairly, um, ethnically diverse, uh, yeah. socioeconomically, probably not so much, which probably explains why I felt okay and comfortable. Um, like there were white kids, black kids, Asian kids, uh, Hispanic mm-hmm. kids. And, um, it wasn't like, that weird a thing. <laughs> and so, um, it wasn't something I thought about much as a child. Um, other than like, uh, you know, at home or, um, with my, with my family and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure some people will highly disagree, but I, I felt very comfortable growing up in America and, um, it never really occurred to me to really, feel like I need, I mean, much older, like, um, as you grow up, it never really occurred to me to identify as Korean, quote unquote. 
I think that's something that more openly came up later. Uh, and not just for okay. me, but for people as a whole. Like it, it just okay, became so like a bigger thing to to like identify as your ethnic, I guess, um, identity. And okay, um, and and you were you were because you were born what nineteen eighty five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mid. Okay, so well, actually, it's so pretty much the same generation, two years before me. But I don't know. Like in my my experience, um, I mean, we're both East Coast, so. And there's a smaller minority of Asians, I guess you could say, on the East Coast. And but oh, yeah. uh, it's not like California Korean, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know the, the Korean people that I knew. Like they were highly aware, and I mean, it's not like you know all the face in your face hoorah, but like if it did come up, they'd be very proud about being Korean. You know, so yeah, at least, yeah, at least yeah. around I mean, my circles. Yeah. No, that's true. I think there were people like that. Um, I guess less me. Like for example, in my neighborhood, there was like no other. Korean family, so um, uh, it was really just my parents and my my sibling, my sister. Um, yeah, that were kind of in that environment. Um, at school, there were a few. Um, I mean, the biggest exposure. My parents, like most, I think, Asian or at least Korean American uh, kids, like they started going to church. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Protestant, though. it was Catholic, which is I think less common. Um, but okay, that's yeah. where. I had more exposure to other um, Korean American kids, but I mean, I always, I guess even as a child, I always felt it was weird to kind of identify just ethnically because mm. um, in my church, yeah, there were a lot of kids who were like proud of being Korean or whatever that means. And like, they'd be into like what, what would become the massive like K-pop thing. Like they would, <laughs> they would be then as well. Yeah. 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 Very early. Really, with that I, um and so it wasn't until much and, and it was always a weird dynamic too it's like what does it mean to be i mean you could do an entire podcast separately on yeah, this of course and, exactly exactly like, it mean to be like something else when you live in america like um if in my experience at least most korean american kids like um they don't even really speak korean like there's very little exposure to like what it actually is and what it's like in korea today or at the time um like is it simply just being around other ethnically korean people and enjoying parts of that pop culture or um Mm -hmm. so i mean like it was something i just didn't really get into that way yeah and yeah i really mostly just preferred to play with my friends in my neighborhood like, yeah. you know, basketball or skateboarding or things like that. I mean, it was stuff you identified and related to out of like proximity rather than by ethnicity. And at least in my experience growing up, um, that was uh, normal, I guess. It yeah. didn't really, yeah. um, I mean, not to say that there weren't instances of like being different or like, yes, yes. even like discrimination, but like, I mean, to be fair, it was kind of like all around, you know, it wasn't just like other kids yeah. picking on me for being Asian. I remember yeah, like point. Yeah. you would pick on other people too, for being <laughs> different. Like yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah. Kid, the black kid, the white kid, it was just kind of all around 360, yeah. like micro discriminations, which <laughs> horrible in today's context. But um, that's just, I mean, if I try to think about times where I felt discriminated against, I can also remember times where I was probably discriminatory. And so um, mm. it's like a weird, I guess that's a weird realization, but at the same time, I would say we dealt with it. 
I don't know. Today, you'd probably be like, what did you internalize and how did that affect you as an adult or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, it was it was kind of normal, I felt. Yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, like, you know, in the context of, of being called out, of being different. But it sounds like, you know, you took everything on a chin. Would you say it's more personality versus environment then? or? I mean, yeah. I, how would you – I don't know how myself back then would answer this. Like, maybe it was more uh, traumatic at the time, but – I don't know, but definitely by high school, you kind of just grew into it. Yeah. A bit. yeah like, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, if you asked me in like primary school or middle school, like maybe it would have been a different answer. But by high school, you just, you're starting to f- be more comfortable in your own skin, I guess, quote unquote. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, by then I, I was a lot more comfortable um, being who I wanted to be. Um, and uh, I think, it kind of, it kind of shows. Um, I hope it kind of shows today. <laughs> like, it, I, I, it, you know, you don't want to downplay it because I think as an older person, I've benefited a lot from like uh, being ethnically Korean and being able to like speak and and like function in Korea and things like that. Um, but um, at the same time, like I think I I, I would not. It would be a disservice to kind of say like. Because it's it's not something you choose, right? It's a it's a genetic yeah, lottery. Right. It's a genetic yeah, lottery. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it I've always thought it's a little weird to be proud of your ethnicity solely for the sake <laughs> of that being your ethnicity. I mean, yeah. Well, I I think it could be also interpreted as a defense mechanism to, you know, people treating you differently. So you you embrace that, and then Possibly. you know, does it have power over it and this kind of thing? And I guess yeah. from my experience, it, it was more of a, a, a subconscious rejection of Asian identity. And I, so maybe it's something I, I struggled with more. But I don't know. Do, so do you feel like you you struggled with identity uh, as you as you got older and as it evolved, or pretty stable from high school onwards? I think from high school onwards, it's stable. I mean, if you bring it up like that, yeah, I think as a younger kid, there was some, like, middle school, there was some, like, tension in that regard. But it was mostly because, like, I didn't feel comfortable with the idea of, like, why should my ethnicity determine, mm. like, um, like uh, who I hang out with or who I, um, yeah. Yeah. how I interact with other people. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, there was some friction earlier on. But um, I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, as an adult, I feel like, that matters less and less, but it's, uh, it's hard to kind of, again, this could be a huge conversation on its own. Like to, the way the climate is today, I, it's hard to determine whether I think about this stuff if it wasn't as so readily, um, pushed, uh, yeah. via social media. Like mm-hmm. there's so many things like trying to get people to individualize more and like embrace whatever you feel is your identity so that i mean those kind of things trigger things in you yourself when you read them right i mean i think yeah. it, it does to me so it's like um would i think about it less if it was not discussed not, as much not, I, I don't know yeah. like i feel like the way the discussions go today it makes you reflect on a lot of things more and so some things are really i think worth reflecting on but at the same time like yeah, personally, I try not to make a huge deal about it. Um, it's not, I hope it's yeah. not what defines me. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So I guess uh, two, two last questions about this before we move to your early career. Um, how, how do you think about this context then for your children who 
you are Korean American, your wife is Korean, but you're both in Paris raising them. They're very yeah. French, I'm sure, at this point. Uh, are you worried for them or you don't care? You just let it be, let them struggle? That's, yeah, that's kind of wild, right? Um, to think about that. Um, um, yeah, they, they, uh, my oldest is, um, she is, uh, she's four now. Um, yeah. she's attended, uh, public school in France up to, they start pretty early. I, I don't think it's compulsory school, but from three, basically they're like, <laughs> send your kid to yeah. like yeah, yeah, a yeah. public um, and so we've been doing that and she went to preschool before that at two. And, um, uh, so at home we, we, so far up to now we speak a hundred percent Korean. And, um, okay. so my daughter, her first language, if, if there is something considered a first yeah, language, yeah. It, it was, it's Korean with us. She primarily speaks with Korean. It's her most comfortable language so far. Um, because uh, home is where she interacts the most. Uh, but after now over two years of school environment, um, exposure, um, well, I mean, already her, her, her French accent is like (laughs) impeccably French. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say her language skills are fully there yet because, you know, it takes time to, to kind of, um, rewire all those things. I think uh, I, I like to brag, but it's not really a brag. It's more like a, I, I think my French is still better than hers solely because <laughs> I, I understand more. Yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. obviously, it'll change will, fast. Yeah, exactly. It's already <laughs> yeah. like she'll like when she listens to me speak French, like she'll correct my, my pronunciation of things. And it's so aggravating yeah. to see like a four year old <laughs> in a French accent try to like correct your French. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's so funny. Man, what the hell? Um, but um, yeah. yeah, I can see it seeping into her now where it's like um, at home now, she'll be like, can we speak French? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, uh, like if, if you want, I don't know if I'm really going to help you, uh, but we can. Um, and uh, then we have the external pressure of um, we have like our parents and other people, even here in, in, in France, people are like, so um, are you going to teach your English? Like, you know, <laughs> the way the, the way the world is today, like English is a huge asset. You should, yeah. you should, I mean, it would be a shame for your kid not to, um, mm-hmm. to be able to be a native speaker. Um, yeah. It's, it's an interesting um, dynamic, the way we, uh, we've situated ourselves. I mean, I kind of want to hold back on communicating with my daughter in English, my kids in English, because I kind of like talking to them in Korean. Like okay. it feels it, it, it was it was my familial language, and I feel um, comfortable in that kind of family environment. Um, from my, like like the dynamics change when you talk to someone in English versus Korean. Mm. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I want to keep that for as long as possible and, and it, caveated with the fact that I think today everyone, most like people in our kind of, um, I don't know, socioeconomic set, like uh, English is such a readily available language. You know, everyone speaks English really well. Like even in Paris, like younger people, the younger generation from our generation on, it's not their English is good. Um, yeah. they speak English really well. So, um, I think it, it, it's something she'll just inherently 
um, take over because be, just by the nature of how inter how kind of global her family already is. Like yeah. me, her father, her mother um, is Korean, but she moved her family moved to Canada when she was like twenty. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're living in France. Um, I, I mean, there's just no way that in my mind that she won't pick up English just as quickly. Um, I mean, even the videos she, 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 we, she recently got a, an Amazon fire, a tablet and like all the videos she likes watching are English videos. Okay. Well, <laughs> English really yeah. Her English will be better than yours soon too. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, uh, uh, yeah, at some point, like she'll, yeah, the, I mean, even French kids today, it's all YouTube, right. And they, yeah. they speak English very well in my opinion so um it's not something i'm so concerned about but we'll see maybe talk to me again in a few years and maybe yeah yeah. i mean that's that's interesting story because my my father and my parents um growing up in america they were worried because they know like funny accents and being different could Mm -hmm. could traumatize you if you're pointed out for that and so they they made a point to speak english at home so i mean of course when i was three years old i was speaking vietnamese only as well right but that's like at a three-year-old level that's like nothing so so that that was always kind of back there as soon as i went to nursery school everything just switched to english and then you know it's like i i struggle now to work backwards to learn the native language of vietnamese and uh, but they they made a very deliberate choice that you know and even today at home we're just going to be speaking English. I'll, I'll try to speak Vietnamese to them. They'll respond back in English. So it's just like a mm. uh, very different but did dynamic. Your parents, both of them immigrate pretty early, or oh yeah, they were really seventeen and eighteen years old, right? So very, oh, very okay. early. On. So they, they were. So their English is probably really good, though, right? Yeah, it's there's no accents, nothing. So <laughs> my my father so, immigrated in similar time, and he speaks. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say like a hundred percent perfect, but I mean he speaks like a native speaker. Like yeah, um, okay. my mother. She only went after getting married in, in her late twenties, mm. I think. Um, yeah. uh, like I, that, that she's probably a key reason why um, uh, I, I, I retain retained Korean. And then, like I, they sent me like to elementary school there. Um, yeah. I, I, I went back regularly. Um, uh, yeah, I mean. It, if it were up to my father, we'd probably be more kind of Americanized, quote unquote. But like, um, uh, I think parents, yeah, for sure. The environment you grow up in plays a big role in like how they interact with how you interact with the kid really plays a big role in, um, the sort of, I don't know, today there's like this big rush to like, Oh, you got to teach them all these like languages. But I think yeah, just by being, um, being curious and open parents, um, will, I think that will trickle down to your kids as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I guess the whole main point of this and for the last question of, of the personal section is, so in, in what kind of ways do you think your identities, uh, the different identities and, and being different has either served or helped you in the context of you being an entrepreneur? Um, being an entrepreneur? Even, yeah. I, yeah. Um, in, in terms of work though, a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure how it would apply to being an entrepreneur, but the way my career has developed, um, for sure, significantly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's also part of it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, did, I, I didn't start as someone who wanted to build their own company or anything like that or, or do their own business. Um, out of university, um, uh, you, I just wanted to be someone who had a job that paid 
reasonably well. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I, because I had, um, I had lived in Japan uh, during university um, for an exchange. For an exchange, um, right? Yeah. Um, an interest in, 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 in Japan um, and going back. Um, if you speak Korean reasonably well, um, learning Japanese is much easier. It's like if you're a Spanish speaker and you learn French or vice versa, mm-hmm. as long as you make the effort, it's, yeah. you can make progress quickly. And so um, I really, um, I did that and um, I got my first job at a Japanese company. Oh, you did? Um, okay. So that's not on your LinkedIn though. Oh man, I got like I need to update. Like, <laughs> LinkedIn is such a weird platform. Um, yeah, like it's. I guess it's great to kind of serve as a Rolodex, but like um, at a certain point, the value is just like really. It's just like people spamming you to use their <laughs> their services over and over. So I don't uh, really. Yeah, up- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it was so long ago, back in 2007, it wasn't, I wasn't even on LinkedIn, so I didn't even like think about yeah, of course, that of kind course. of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's how I got my first job. Um, then uh, I moved to Korea uh, just because um, I think there was just a lot more things happening. I like being in Asia. There are a lot more things happening in Asia. So there was no um, immediate interest for me to go back to the U.S., um, it was exciting. Okay. I was um, a lot of things happening. As, as you know, I think you did kind of a similar thing, right? You moved out there at some certain point, and there was—I mm. imagine there still is. I don't know. You can tell me, but there was a big dynamic overall in the region of like where. While in the this was around two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when when I started working, and while there was that financial crisis that were making yeah. people pessimistic in the U.S. Um, in Asia things were like booming. Yeah. And yeah. exciting. Uh, I moved on to Korea where um, I stayed for five years, maybe. Um, yeah, you, and, you moved for KPMG, right? Yeah, I, I was working with KPMG while I was at Korea. Well, I was in Korea. Um, I was doing um, financial advisory, um, yeah. helping with cross-border uh, transactions, like merchants. Yeah. I mean, it, like I said, it was a really dynamic time. The um, Korean economy was booming. Um, Samsung Mobile, for example, like with the mm-hmm. emergence of Samsung Electronics was just like that That boom was trickling everywhere. So um, it was a lot of um, cross-border transactions happening. Korean companies yeah. were more flush cash and they were trying to buy up a lot of other entities and assets overseas. Um, okay. It was time a lot of things to do and so they needed people that spoke um, both korean and english to facilitate okay. um, these engagements and things like that so um yeah i would say my background <laughs> helped tremendously um in <laughs> in that regard um so i yeah um despite me saying like <laughs> it's not a big deal to me um yeah professionally it was a huge asset um, to be able to uh, speak and work in Korean. And um, th- it's also what got me into tech startups, I guess, um, yeah. as you, with Rocket. Um, Rocket was my first uh, kind of startup experience, uh, kinda, uh, so to speak. 
Um, and likewise, um, when they started recruiting to, to expand into Asia, they were looking for Asia-based professionals um, that had kind of like a Western mindset, I guess, that, that had experience yeah. with Western companies and Western uh, work cultures. And that's, I think, yeah, that's how pretty much I got connected with Rocket and uh, uh, started working there. Like the same with um, the guy who brought me in there, uh, Stephen Chung. I mean, that was his yeah. Uh, yeah. his kind of entry point into Rocket. And so, <laughs> yeah, I guess um, it does, the background does play, did play a big role into me ultimately staying in startups and tech and now doing uh, what I do now. Yeah. So, so basically what you're saying is like uh, your, your background is being first international being, uh, you know, kind of foreign in America, even though you are so very American, uh, having different identities basically served you very well to be more, I guess you're riding the wave of globalization, essentially. You're, you're taking yeah, it positioned me very, yeah, that's the yeah, way of yeah, saying it. It positioned yeah. me well for that. And, and then what, what kind of ways do you think it maybe has held you back or done a disservice for you, do you think? Held me back? <laughs> yeah. Um, or nothing negative? <laughs> I mean, nothing evidently negative if there was either I'm not aware of, or it was insignificant enough where I'm not thinking about it now. Um, I think uh, less being Asian, but just kind of being foreign in Europe. um, I think something like if you're kind of like me or you in Asia, Oh, I don't know how it is today. It might've changed because there's a lot of, yeah. people with Western kind of backgrounds in Asia now that have ro- rode that wave, right? Um, yeah. To much greater and more successful extents than I have. Um, so, I, and I think in Korea itself, there was at a certain point a kind of resentment towards people like that as well. Cause it's like, Oh, like, well, you don't really understand the culture here or you don't really yeah. understand like the environment here. So, so there's like ups and downs to that, but um, yeah. uh, it, it wasn't so bad. Uh, in my own experience, at least um, in Europe, I guess sometimes uh, it's weird. It, it's more, I think, visually to the average person, I'm Asian, not American, but from a working okay. context, because um, you know, you, in Europe, it's it's a lot about documentation. It's a lot about like um, it, it's very clear I'm American. Like setting up a company, I have to show my passport. I have to when yeah. I go to the bank, I have to show my passport, and um, um, that's that's kind of an advantage. I get like people are like, I don't know what it'd be like to show like another passport, like a from like more like a developing country or something. But if you flash an American passport, it's like, oh, okay, like we're not going to give. In general, obviously this is a yeah. generality, but it's like you tend to not be given as much shit as someone who's, yeah, 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 yeah. who's, who's got a, um, a different kind of passport. Um, but at the same time, um, there, I think, especially in tech, in terms of like venture back things, there is, it's not so um, catered to people who are not from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, less on the ethnicity part and more just like um, there's yet a, I mean, Compared to U.S. venture, for example, um, and you probably know Asia venture better than me now since you've been there a lot longer. Um, yeah. U.S. venture, it's it's obviously it's a return based business, but at the same time, um, there's a willingness to take risk, right? Um, yep. it, it, that's kind of what venture is all about. 
especially at the early stages um, here. Even it's, it's funny. Cause like they adopt the language of US VCs. Like it's all about the early stage. Like it's like trust the founder. It's like you got uh, to in Europe. People. You're saying, right? Yeah. In Europe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. But I mean, it's really just like dress window dressing. Like you can adopt like the California language and stuff like that, yeah, but yeah. you don't see that in the deal flows. Like there's very little early stage. It's still very premature. Um, I, yeah. I can imagine some European VC will be like, no, that's not true at all. Look at our, <laughs> look at our deal flow. Look <laughs> of at course. Chart. Like, uh, but yeah. like, seriously, there's really little infrastructure for early stage. There, there'll be like an accelerator or an incubator and they'll be like, we'll give you space and we'll charge that for like 5% of and like that'll count as like money that we give to you and to, that you're burning for fuel. And it's like, um, uh, that kind of stuff gets even harder for foreigners. Right. Um, and, um, okay, I what you mean. that, that I think has been challenging in that regard, but, um, <clears throat> I don't know. Yeah. Being Asian or being, American in general, uh, again, like I, I, maybe it's my outlook. It just it hasn't really impacted me so differently yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, you, you bring up a lot of interesting things there. Like, so uh, I guess the first point I'd like to talk. I mean, just to briefly mention again is like I, I think that dynamic of Asian American coming to Asia and having like a local resentment. It's definitely more of a North Asian thing. I feel like I hear this thing about Taipei and Shanghai. Right. You know, ABC is coming in. Uh, I guess now you're telling me Korea as well. But like living in Southeast Asia for like nearly 10 years, you, at least I don't, maybe it's because my bubble, I, I don't feel anything like this. You know, <laughs> it's like, I guess it depends how well you could ingratiate yourself with locals, adopt, uh, you know, adopt the vernacular, the, the tendencies, the, you know, things. And then, uh, but you know, I, I definitely don't see that dynamic as much sure. as Southeast Asia. No, to be fair, yeah, the time we spent together in Vietnam, um, yeah, you're, you're, I mean, I, I wouldn't feel it like, like uh, what do you call it? A Viet Q, like a Vietnamese yeah, yeah, diaspora yeah, yeah. would feel it. But yeah. um, you're at least in my observation, it, it kind of felt like what you say. Yeah, there was more openness. I guess they were still yeah, yeah. kind of like, oh, you're one of us, kind of thing. Yeah, no, exa exactly. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. funny you say that. It's like just as long as like you know you're not opening your mouth and sounding too American. <laughs> uh, just because of the way you look, right? You're just going to be kind of accepted and treated as local, right? That's Whereas, true. you know, in America growing up, you're, you're different and sometimes you get called out and it does, sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't stick. And that depends on the person and your, yeah. your upbringing. Like you kind of, kind of like how you mentioned for me, I think it affected me more subtly over time. And that's why I was more conscious. So I thought I was very curious to kind of discuss that and see how, you know, it, it kind of developed along your career. But it seems like, you know, it more or less, you know, net positive for you. And then, you know, you, you kind of made this break to Korea and you're kind of doing M&A deals. Um, you know, was that was that very hard culturally to adjust, or was it just like you know home for you going to Korea? Uh, um, well, to clarify, I wasn't doing M and A deals. <laughs> like the partner would be doing M and A deals. Okay, but I you were part of the deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be supporting yeah. the partner. Um, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, like it was early in my career, and I think um, like I was more in an analyst role than than anything else. Yeah. Um, but um. No, I mean, I felt comfortable. I liked it. I liked the experience. I liked it much better than working for a Japanese company, for example. Like, okay. um, speaking of, like, being other, um, being Korean, American, and Japanese company was really, like, oh, God. feeling like... That's got to be terrible. <laughs> I, I liked the experience. It was a great experience. It was, just, okay. um, it was just from a... 
if you think of it purely from a social perspective, though, it's literally just like work, like be in the office, mm -hmm. like do the, yeah. the do the work, and um, uh, it would it's just like um, that's how you're treated. I, I don't know if you're Japanese, if that would be different, right? There's more of a social yeah. dynamic, uh, but for being like a non-Japanese person, um, uh, there was very little um, outside of the work itself that kind of entered that professional dynamic. Um, in Korea, it was much different, right? I mean, I felt more at home. I was less a foreigner and people were more like kind of receptive to me. And so um, I've, I appreciate that a lot. There was a huge, um, yeah. uh, it was a huge uh, change in environment going from a Japanese company to a Korean office environment. Because um, even though it was KPMG, it was the Korean yeah. um, affiliate of that. And so it was, it was pretty much a 100% Korean office. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was much more, for me at least, culturally comfortable. I mean, it speaks to the nature of, well, I mean, there's a few things. I think maybe Northern Asian cultures, they, they tend to be more conservative and close. So if you were Japanese, maybe they would might have, like a Japanese American, maybe they might have accepted you a little bit further in. Possibly. And it would have been more familiar. But like you being Korean, speaking Korean growing up, maybe that allows you to, you know, reach across the divide more and, and ingratiate to the locals. Like for me, definitely speaking Vietnamese and Vietnam definitely helps. I mean, like if you're a foreigner, you can get along fine, no problem. But like if you can speak on the same level, uh, even if it's basic, you know, you already are at another place where it's even more comfortable and you're more open, you know. So. I, I, to me, again, this is just my opinion. Nothing yeah, I say should be like fact or anything, but my, my feeling when I was there in that short time was Vietnamese people are generally much more open than Koreans. <laughs> They're more, I mean, people are just um, super, not, I say this as the word itself, not in a negative way, like superficially just friendly. Like yeah, people yeah, are, yeah. are open. Um, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Almost like an American way. Right? Americans are very superficially. Superficial in, in a way, yeah, sure. And, yeah. Um, uh, and, and that was, I never felt like, um, that was never a problem in Vietnam, feeling like, oh, I hate yeah. the people or something. The people are yeah, very yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was, that was never kind of um, something negative in Vietnam. Whereas I can see in like Japan and Korea how people at first glance can be very reticent and not as mm. readily open. Yeah. And that's interesting. You pointed about that you felt better in Korea, but like I would imagine the work culture is pretty much the same as Japan, no? Like, just work. Maybe um, like you could socialize more. Yeah, yeah, I could socialize more, so that alleviated a lot of it. But um, I see. certainly a lot of work, uh, for sure, um, in a corporate environment, in a in a services environment, because yeah. um, uh, that's what that's what a financial services firm does, right? You exactly. you're, you're a service yeah. provider. You're, it's not an industry job where you're producing like products. Your product is like the 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 accounting, the auditing, the advisory, um, the 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 due, the due diligence. And so um, certainly um, that is a very competitive and work intensive environment. And uh, yeah. that, uh, but I mean, again, it was much more alleviated by the fact that I could socialize with my colleagues on a more, like I, I consider my colleagues like friends, whereas in mm -hmm. Japan, I don't think I, I, I stay in <laughs> touch with any of the colleagues I had when I worked Japan. at the Japanese company. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, did you work on any, deals or anything that you kind of picked up from, you know, working in a financial advisory, M&A, due diligence, valuation that 
is useful that you could, that you could use today, or was it just all the, in the past? Sorry, deals? Like, did I work on any deals that that were probably like that? Were you developing you valuable I, skills, or you know something that you picked okay. up along the way that helps you today? Um, I mean, in general, the, those early um, that early working in a in, a, in corporate environments uh, for sure. I mean, it gives you structure. It tells yeah. you. It, it informs you on how like work processes and workflows work. Um, it's, it, it's, it's very well structured. It's very highly structured, that, that kind of thing. There's protocols for everything. There's templates for everything. Um, I mean, today it's all about the web browser and like all the extensions you have for work on yeah. your web browser. Back then, um, it might be the case today, I haven't gone back to corporate, so I don't know, but it was all about the macros like built into your Microsoft yes. Excel or Microsoft, yes. Microsoft PowerPoint, the office suite, like yeah. all companies had their own kind of like macros and, 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 and visual basic kind of workflows embedded into those things that so you could do like company specific stuff, like directly yeah. into, into um, um, directly in your applications. Um, and so, um, I mean, you just, I think if anything, those kind of careers in, 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 in banking or consulting, advisory, things like that, what they do, I mean, people can talk shit about them all they want, but what they do do is kind of um, teach you structure, okay. which is like really hard in a startup, as you probably know. Like it's- well, that, that, that's the perfect segue, right? Because like right after you did KPMG, you joined Rocket Internet, right? So yeah. That, that must have been quite jarring then, like of how, it, man, it was like the wild, wild east, right? Like, it, it was like got all like you know throw a thing on a wall see what sticks you know just shotgun everything um no no process no structure at least to start right i mean yeah. of course the end goal is to, to build something of value and, and of course make it structured make it work as a machine but like you're literally starting with nothing uh, with no rules um you know there's a lot of money at stake you're given a lot of money a lot of responsibility um i mean how, how you know how did you take that from a corporate environment going into something like rocket internet um it was surprising and it wasn't surprising, right? It was surprising because um, uh, it's a startup, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, like, sorry, it was surprising because, yeah, it's just jarring in general to, like, yeah. be exposed to that kind of environment. But it wasn't surprising because, um, um, I mean, we, we did a lot of, like, deals with the medium kind of enterprises uh, back in okay. my um, uh uh, advisory days and even medium-sized enterprises that have managed to scale to like, you know, a couple million in revenue a year. Like um, you'd be shocked to like how like elbow grease kind of those <laughs> operations tend to be when you dig in. Still very stuff. entrepreneurial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're doing the due diligence and stuff, I mean, but it, it still is highly like, you know, founder or CEO based yeah. where they're, they've just talent, they're talented people who've managed to build it up to a certain level but yeah, it's still yeah. very much like the amount of times, like the most common one without getting into specifics that I can always recall is like just sensitive data being stored on like multiple USB sticks or like some, like, <laughs> yes. I well, mean, that could be for multiple reasons too, though. I don't yeah. know, people hiding stuff and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean like the things yeah. you uncover, like when you do like accounting due diligence is like, um, is uh, pretty hardcore, but I, I mean, at the same time, it's like fascinating that, um, you know, it, it really is no, like when you think startups today, you think about the tech world and things like that and venture yeah. back things. But yeah, I mean, startup is just a fancy word for like your own 
like a, a new business, like someone building a business. And um, that's what these guys are, whether it's manufacturing or it's, um, yeah. or it's, uh, um, I don't know, like, um, I mean, I pretty much worked mostly with manufacturing. So that's what comes to mind, yeah, but yeah. like uh, they're all startup stories in one form or another. And they're just, talented people who've managed to, to grow to a certain um, yeah. scale. And uh, that, I mean, so that wasn't so surprising at rocket. Mm -hmm. um, I guess what, com what comes from a corporate job before that is what you should, what you should um, take away and then apply is like you said, you're just kind of throwing random stuff at the wall, but it's like, how do you quickly, processize that if that's a word how do you quickly make a pro process out of that so you can like um, do trial and error see what sticks yeah. and then serve to like improve what sticks and that's i think true. that i think coming from a corporate environment first that's if if you're remotely kind of good at the startup job you want to do next is that i mean you that's something you should bring like uh being able to um synthesize what being able to being able to like try things and then synthesize what works into doing those things that work better. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I mean, you got to start with with an idea. Uh, you know, maybe sometimes you you spreadsheet it out, you game it out a bit, then you got to execute it, then see if see what the results are. You got to measure the results and you optimize from there, right? And keep keep improving. And uh, I guess that's what I mean. So to give the context, right? The the, the venture we're talking about for Rocket was very early. It was like 2012. It was Zalora. Uh, when when it was first launched for Zalora Vietnam in this case. So, I mean, I, I had been launching a few of them before, and then uh, you joined the venture to, to I guess, your your job was to do the, uh, you were hired, well, actually, what were you hired for? What, were they, what did they tell you when you first joined? I was an entrepreneur in residence, and they wanted me to start with Zalora in Vietnam. That's it, nothing else? Yeah, they were like, uh, we just need people. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much was the pitch, right? So, yeah. Uh, Okay, you'll do procurement, you'll do buying. And I was like, um, okay, but like beforehand, it wasn't. No, they initially approached me to try Glossy Box, actually. Uh, uh, in uh, Korea or where? Yeah, in Korea. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I didn't really feel enthused about um, doing. I mean, it, the, the business was great. It just wasn't something I was so interested in. Like the, 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 the front end part of that, like makeup. Yeah, it was a women's yeah, makeup. Makeup subscription. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. um, uh, I mean, if you ask me now, I, I maybe I would have done it. Maybe I would do yeah, it yeah, because yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you learn quickly that it's really more about like the back end of things. But um, correct, at the time, correct. I was less enthused. And um, so then quickly, there was another. They, they tried another. I think um, the Airbnb clone. Uh, Wimdu. They they tried uh, um, getting me onto Wimdu too. I, I was more open to that, but I think uh, it became quickly clear that they wanted to do more like proper e-commerce, like e -commerce, retailing yeah, stuff. Yeah. And they were like, "All right, no, we got this project, Zora. You got to do this one." And yeah, um, yeah. I was more open to it then. No, that's fair. I mean, yeah, it's uh, and then you you jumped into the buying job, which you had never done before. Uh, no. which I guess for, for people who don't know about e-commerce, right? So you like, especially for fashion, what you do is you build up, a, you got to get the, the catalog built, right? So you have to basically set up relationships with people who actually have 
the actual clothing, the products that you're looking for, you know, onboard suppliers, right? And then yeah, the, the vendors and the brands who suppress yeah, supply. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And, and that was your first challenge. And then um, what were what, I'm not what sure were your why that, that I'm not sure why that was what they wanted. Um, I mean, they, I, I'm sure you remember they had a very um, talented and experienced guy kind of already uh, on board yeah. in Pradeep. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess they, since Pradeep was hired locally, they wanted someone at the rocket level to yeah, to help right. kind of cultivate that more. And so, um, yeah, I guess the idea was um, to couple me with a more experienced guy so that we could really make a process out of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, what do, you, what do you think about that structure? Do you think that was the right call? Do you think it makes sense? Do you apply similar kind of thinking to how you're building your startup today when you think about hiring people? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, well, firstly, it's like a weird, I, I think about this often because like, especially today, it's such a, um, it's such a best practice where like, especially VCs love to say things like, um, you've got to hire the best people in the world to like, the, like the experts, like the, the yeah, people who yeah, are smarter yeah. than you. And it's like um, the people who are better than you. Like, uh, and it's like, they make it sound so easy, but that's, that's not such an easy thing to do. Right. Like you want Correct, the best, yeah. I don't know, fashion buyer in the world to work for your rinky dink e-commerce. You're going to have to come up yeah. with something better than a value prop for like, we're building online shopping, like in, in ways yeah, yeah, no yeah. one's seen before. <laughs> Um, but I mean, having said that, it is true to a certain extent. You you want people, in, in my experience at least, there's two kind of things you should be looking for um, that are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but can be um, either someone who's like really like an expert in what they're doing or like really good in what they're doing, great in what they're doing, so that they can really supercharge what you've already kind of done in that yeah. domain. Or you want someone who's a general good all aroundist kind of person, someone who, yeah. yeah, who's um, who's not the best, but they um, they either are quick learners or they're super passionate about what you're doing and can 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 make it work no matter what um, no matter what kind of challenge comes their way. And I mean, those those are ideal qualities that you look for in in in. Um, um, in 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 higher in hirings, I guess in 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 yeah. uh, people you try to recruit for the startups you bring. But I mean, it, it, still, it's always so cliche. It's like everyone has to be like. Every, it seems like everyone has to be like the best resume in the world, and things, and that makes sense. I mean, from a VC's perspective, that's what you want to see. But I mean, in practice, it's a lot harder than simply like you're not just going through LinkedIn and like show me every like Harvard trained fashion buyer that you can find and yeah. like yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I'll just pitch them this glorious vision of like this crazy e-commerce and I mean it's it's experimentation it's it's a little trial and error and just like anything else in the startup yeah I mean that's it's definitely a lot of that and no, the, the other the other side is that you know some sometimes there's hidden gems which which are you know so nice surprises you hire someone for something else but you find out they're really amazing at something else um, I mean, I guess I guess the method you're talking to is very VC, but also very Rocket at the time too, right? You know, just looking for brand name, hiring fast. But I mean, for Rocket, it had a purpose to an end. A VC, I don't know, maybe that's just signaling or something like that, right? Yeah. You know? uh, so it's, it's 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 a lot more. It's not so black and white like you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, like obviously you want like home run hitters, AAA players, right, all the time. Right. But um, yeah. that's not always the case. So 
you probably should really only hire when you need to hire. Firstly, like just yes. do it your like bootstrap shitty way as long as possible, as long as it works, as long as possible, yeah. and only when you know that you're at like some breaking point, you should try to bring someone else in to do it. Um, but then like, uh, um, it's really, um, what do you have to offer? Right. What, what's your, yeah. and uh, what's your value prop to the, to the recruiter recruit T and, um, that that's not that simple, right? It, it, it's, it's a no brainer that you want the best person, but can you get them or, Maybe yeah. at this point, it's better just to get someone who can who can get the job done right. Well, here, here's a very interesting question that I had when I was launching Zalora Taiwan, and I was watching the two founders there. Like, like we were up to like four or five a.m. in the morning every day, and I would just watch them fight like crazy about whether or not to just with the small team we have now, which is like maybe five seven people, just execute or spend more time, which would take longer to hire people to get more people in. And scale that way. So when, when do you know that you should just focus on execution versus focusing on hiring them? Um, I think in general, a general way to answer that is just when you're completely out of your element, right? Um, mm. If it's something you just really can't do, then like, yeah, hire someone to do it. But having said that, I mean, Rocket is a weird kind of example to use, right? Because it's not like you're a bootstrap startup yeah, exactly. trying to yeah, do, yeah. You, you have cash. Um, how yeah. much uh, uh, varies, obviously. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. It depends on your skill out of the whole pie they raised for the venture, right? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. like, um, I mean, I think that's kind of um, a, a weirder example. And like with Rocket, I think it's also different because you kind of already have the playbook. You know what you need to do. Yeah, so correct. like if yeah, you knew yeah, that, yeah, exactly. hiring like a great experienced person is something that's worked in the past and you have the capital to kind of bring in or poach someone who can, who can bring that skill to you. Um, I think that's part of the playbook and um, that should be something you might be aiming to do to grow faster in the earlier part. Um, but again, uh, but in a, in a, in a pure startup, like something you're starting yourself with very limited resources, like you're like you don't have a VC backing you, you're using your personal savings or something. Um, I, I do think that it's a good, a best practice for the founder to try to establish those initial yeah. kind of right. um, ways to do things yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. But, but I guess where that it might serve you later is that assuming you have a very strong product market fit and then you have raised to scale, then you might apply that advice you talked about where, you know, if you have the resources, then you start looking for people, assuming, you know, you don't have the expertise, right? Yeah. So I guess it applies, you, it applies at a different stage possibly. Yeah. Certainly when there's more finesse needed, um, I think um, as a founder, I think in general, you should be a generalist. I think uh, that, I mean, that's not necessarily, that's not a rule of thumb, but like yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. a good, I would say on the business, if you're like a business type founder, um, you should be more general all around, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but all founders should be, I think, to a certain extent, trying to be all around with your business. Um, but, yeah. uh, like, it's not meant to be pretty, I think, at this stage. You're just trying to find what works. And, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's when you need the finesse, I think, is probably the best time to start looking externally for people who can bring that. Yeah. So, uh I guess, you know, towards the end of your, your time there, you know, you eventually decide to leave. Um, what, what is your greatest takeaway then of, of, from Rocket? 
Uh, I mean, it, it was it was a fantastic experience overall, right? Um, despite all uh, any kind of like friction or like difficulty, that, I and mean, that's with all things. Um, yeah. I think ultimately we you might have done more because you stayed longer and you did with other yeah. ventures. Um, I ultimately touched, I guess, three ventures with them. Like uh, yeah. we did uh, Zalora, that offshot into uh, Lazada and Office Fab. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they, I think it was because we started first. They definitely like just correct. They just wrote everything that we did. <laughs> I mean, to and be fair, we wrote off. We wrote off of like uh, whatever they did in Europe was Zalando as well. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. sure. So I mean, it's, it's all coming from the epicenter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it it was very interesting to um, kind of get that uh, um, exposure to e-commerce, especially at that time, right in Asia. It was such a um, particularly like Southeast Asia was such a, like a growing thing that was um, that was really new, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I think what I learned, uh, e-commerce is also like, a, I mean, you can say that about any specific category, but it's such a intense category. Like it's tech, but it's not really tech. Like the front, yeah, the yeah, window yeah. dressing is tech. It's a storefront, but behind that, it's very it's much like manually. Yeah. operations logistics like um that 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 part is um it's hard to kind of want to rep i mean for the e-commerce specialists like hats off to them it's such a crazy intense um category um yeah, for sure but, for sure uh, for me i just felt like um e-commerce was my entry point into tech startups and i didn't want to yeah doing e-commerce uh, and it was like a grown, it became very obvious. And I think a lot of rocket founders uh, and rocket um, rocket guys kind of realized that at the time that the growing real need as tech enabled businesses skyrocket is in SaaS. Yeah. SaaS. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah software, the service. I, 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 I saw that as well. And I kind of wanted to mo- move more into that kind of field mm-hmm. rather than, just doing pure e-commerce and uh that's kind of it, it was a i had already prior to rocket i had already um applied to and been accepted to business school i just kept putting it off for like uh oh, okay. two years okay and so, so you were like, just deferring okay. yeah i had deferred for like two years now um it was like business school or accounting masters and um yeah ultimately business school seemed to be more of like a better all around kind of career move as I didn't want to stay in an accounting capacity and anything. And um, uh, yeah, I had that to kind of fall back on and decided rocket. I think the interesting thing was it, it enabled me to work with a lot of Europeans and um, it just made me more, I lived in the U S I lived in Asia. Uh, Why not move over to Europe after see what that's all about. (laughs) Yeah, so you you basically already had your MBA set up at the H school as a HEC, right? Yeah, yeah, I, went, I did my MBA at HEC Paris. Yeah, and then um, and it's you you would you already applied before Rocket even, right? So I guess you're coming off this financial experience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So you were you were of the mindset, um, uh, and your reasons your reasons were more probably related around your mindset of the time when you were working in financial services that you thought this would be a good career. Right? <laughs> That's an interesting, I forgot about that, but it's true. Like when I applied, yeah. it was a completely different mindset than when yeah. I actually yeah. ended up going. It's true. Um, so, so, 
but then you why, why not defer further and continue of rocket or do another venture why, why did you choose business school that's a good question um i think i just think the way it ended for me at rocket was not i i, I it was a great experience in retrospect and i really liked it um and i really yeah. appreciated what i learned um it just didn't yeah end so um amicably for me uh, yeah, i mean yeah. well, I, to, to be fair in, in many parts my own um way of doing it like they they offered for me to do more they're like just come to singapore ventures, and we'll, yeah. we'll throw you into something like they were yeah, yeah, doing so many things uh the time, in the region yeah. at that time they were just like yeah just come into singapore we'll see what we can fit you else in and i just didn't like the way that transition was doing on a human level yeah and um so yeah i kind of was like no like fuck you guys i don't want to do this anymore yeah. <laughs> and like um, i was like i'll just do my mba i had it um so it yeah, wasn't yeah. i mean I still spoke with Mark a few times at Mark Samor a few times afterwards. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like, um, it was like a terrible, terrible, like exit. It was just more like, um, I didn't agree with the way the transition, because when I left, it was transitioning into like another, um, uh, Don had left, Don who had started it, um, had left and they were really trying to, um, I guess the strategy strategy changed from being like each country holding their own to trying to be like um, much Regional. more. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. I didn't agree with that. And it ultimately didn't end up happening that way. Right. Uh, it ultimately be, did become still like a, um, what do you call it? Uh, a compartmentalized or a more, um, what do you call it when they're like components? Subsidiary? No, no. Like, um, like they're they're parts of a whole, but the parts can function on their own. Not in a company perspective. Oh. It was more like a um, you use this for hardware a lot, where parts can work on their own, or they can work oh, as part okay, of like okay, a bigger. Okay. But in any case, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's how it ended up happening, right? Other the main hubs kind of imploded, and then like the 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 regional. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, so there was yeah there was a regional layer for a while, but then some markets just. I guess, you know, for, for the, the, the targets and expectations could not keep up. So they closed some markets. And yeah, some exactly. Markets were, were, were eventually sold off, which, you know, I guess either because of timing or market size, right? Some combination. Yes. I mean, I think um, that was the kind of the way it should have. I mean, whatever. They, they have their idea and blueprint of how to do things. So far, correct, so, yeah. um, far be it. Uh, don't let me tell them how to do like what they yeah, know how yeah. to do. Uh, well, they're, they're I, I do more, just. Yeah. Sorry. So I was going to say they're, they're definitely far more uh, successful, in, in at least from a monetary perspective, yeah, at least, right? So <laughs> the way things played out was kind of in line with the way I had like foreseen it. Like it was just it didn't yeah. seem like a sustainable strategy, and that we were forced to kind of do things from regional things that only was because it would scale better regionally, but not necessarily mean better Pretty locally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I think, yeah, that was. That was definitely the rocket method, I guess, where you would have this dynamic where, you know, you initially have a lot of control, but then, you know, eventually you see that control and then you have to kind of fall in line. And then if, if you're not making the numbers in that strategy, you're going to be cut eventually. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like for us, um, we had decent numbers from, uh, yeah. it, it was mostly because I, I still stand by it. We were, we were much more fiscally conservative. In, in many oh, ways, yeah. uh, forced yes. like compared to some other markets that just went balls to the wall, like yeah, we're yeah, gonna yeah. we're gonna splurge on everything. I think um, 
the reason why our the Vietnam one was able to at least kind of float by was like we weren't just <laughs> burning the cash just to burn the yeah. cash completely. Correct. Yes, correct, correct, correct. And then, well, also your experience leaving is quite unique because when, when I left, I only spoke to the regional CEO because it was more mature at the time. But yeah. how did you manage to actually get in touch with Mark somewhere than the actual brother, one of the brothers? Um, I think because it was just really early on. Um, yeah. We they were more involved at that. I don't know what it's like today, but they were more yeah, involved yeah. at the time. And like, so, like so I knew said, you by name. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I, I mean, I'm not saying I did like a fantastic job. But of course, we, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We've scaled out buying pretty well in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's still a ton of things we did wrong that I think um, in retrospect could be d- done better, but we scaled it out pretty well. We had built out some of the, I had built out some of the earlier um, overseas procurement things as well that was happening. Um, yeah. Uh, and so w- I just had to regularly interface with them a lot more because yeah, it wasn't just Vietnam. I, I was in, at, towards the end, I was in China a lot. I don't know if you remember, but I was in I China. Remember. Oh yeah. You did China bias. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah there yeah. was no other team doing that at the time. So they were really trying to, um, figure out like how to make that viable. Um, it's just like pure rocket style. Once they saw something was connected, then they tried to bring in like all these other guys yeah, 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 yeah. overcomplicating the entire process. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, for that, I was interfacing with, um, with Mark very regularly. And so yeah. uh, it, it's like, I think good parts of rocket is like, if you get parts right, um, you get rewarded accordingly. Yeah, and sure. um, I true. think that was a, maybe some, some work cultures that doesn't work well, but um, that I, I kind of, I can appreciate that kind of work culture. And, and yeah. to me, Rocket really, um, that was one of the good things of what they did at the time. I don't know what it's like today, but what they did at the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, today's a little bit different. They're more traditional. They're closer to, they're still venture builder, but they give more a lot more equity. Apparently, that's like the word on the street. So, and then I mean, it's more of a return. Like all these uh, Rocket alumni, they can do it better than the, the you know the Rocket factory itself. No. Yeah. Uh, so now they have they have to kind of focus more on what's been working for for the past you know many many yeah. decades. So it's it's kind of like know, at least that's the convers the conversations I've had with people still around in Rocket. So you know, funny yeah. side story. I went to um, Oktoberfest in Munich, Germany, um, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, from I forget one a few years back, and um, yeah. I bumped into Ali there with the. Uh, that's that's where he lives apparently, right? So I think the rocket's based in Berlin, but I think his house is like from what I heard, his house is in Munich. Okay, so it's, I'm not surprised you actually. I mean, it's it's a big city ish still, but it's, it's funny that you actually bumped into. Did he recognize you or? I don't know if he actually like. So I actually run. I bumped into him a few times since living in Europe. Um, That's uh, so weird. I, I went to the World Economic Forum in Davos a few times, not as like a a big kind of uh, as a participant or anything, more <laughs> just like as an attendee. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't. I mean, I don't know if he actually remembers remembers me, but you know, he's like, oh, like, oh, yeah, hey, and like, uh, I mean, we <laughs> talked. That's very him, I guess. We talked yeah. a few um, startup stuff and investment stuff a few times. Um, he really didn't like the. He's always searching for new things, right? And, of course, yeah. Uh, so, so he was super open and gave me time for stuff like that. I know at the time, though, he really didn't like the fact that he was like, "What are you doing? Like, uh, that sounds interesting. Like, uh, how can I help? Like, can I get in?" But he really it's didn't so like the fact that I was based in France. He, it, it, oh, okay. He wanted you to be in what Germany. 
Well, no, no, no. Um, I think it was just like the <laughs> the more kind of super employee friendly labor laws make uh, it harder to do rocket style like uh, that's true yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. pump 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 and and yeah, <laughs> and, and it's fire, fire, fire. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, uh, yeah. like um and so uh, I, I don't know what he feels because having said that rocket has a presence here and they do stuff here but um i think he like uh and to be fair doing a venture with an entity in france now it's like um there are a lot of benefits, but at the same time, there's some bureaucratic challenges that make um, the venture model a bit uh, challenge, more challenging. Well, I guess Europe's in a, a very similar to Southeast Asia in the sense that each market is its own thing, it's its own customs, its own rules, its own it's its own game, right? So, like, uh, it's not like you could scale something easily across. I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm guessing, but like, you can't easily, you know, scale you know something across Europe as you would like the U.S. or China, right? I think it depends who you ask. Um, it's certainly true. There, there's so many regional differences that present challenges. Um, I mean, superficially, the language, of course, is a big thing, but like yeah. every country tries to maintain its own sense of um, sovereignty. So that makes um, certain things harder to do. But I mean, there are some real hardcore unionists, the EU unionists here that are like, no, this is the, this is the advantage we need to leverage. Like there, there's a way to yeah. do it. Um, so it really, yeah, it really depends who you ask. Some people find that to be a challenge. Other people are like, no, it's like a market like the U S or China where we can, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I can just kill everything. Or, yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know how true that is. Um, either or, but, uh, again, it, that kind of challenge, it really depends who you ask. I mean, you just got to look at the proof of the pudding, whether it's just a sale to get raised money or, you know, how many companies have scaled as fast exponentially as you see in China or the U.S., right? It's, just yeah. look at the results, I guess. There's um, still, I see when, when I look at like startup jock postings and stuff, like there still is like kind of country manager sort of positions okay. internally yeah. within the EU. So I don't know, like in the U.S., you'd never see like. Oh, or would you, you? You'd see, you'd city, see what, manager, state? city city manager. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't see a state manager though. You'd see like a city manager maybe. Would, would you probably get as regional managers uh, <clears throat> of maybe yeah. a few states, few cities, right? Assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, basically. So, uh, anything worth mentioning in the MBA? Was it good? Was it a waste of time? Do you recommend it for people? <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? I know. Um, <clears throat> I know, like. Pure startup guys resent things like MBAs and things like that. You don't need to pay like so much money to to, to learn about business and things. Um, I, I, I think that that's absolutely true. That's that's not a lie, and I, I think that's a if that's the conception of an MBA, that's that's entirely um, false. And I think that you'd be surprised mm -hmm. how many students do come in thinking like, oh, like my time here, one to two years here. I'm going to take courses on M&A and I'm going to be an M&A specialist. Like, 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 yeah. Even the professor who teaches M&A like has, has no M&A experience. And like, if you actually <laughs> try to like understand beyond theory, what he's talking about, it's clear the guy is only talking from like a textbook example rather than like what actually happens on the ground. Um, well, my favorite, my, sorry. Well, my, my favorite is these days, like, People go MBA to 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 get experience to, to start a startup now, which is a little bit backwards, right? Yeah, the entrepreneurial kind of track thing is a bit. Um, there's that's it's a bit weird. Uh, there's a kind of a in, incongruity, I think, in that sense. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, 
my favorite example was like, I think IBM had sponsored like a big data course um, uh, one semester and, uh, but it's really limited seating. Right. Um, and obviously mm. with the IBM name brand, like everyone wanted to do it. And yeah. I remember this one girl, um, she didn't get accepted because uh, it was like application based. That's how limited it was. <laughs> and she didn't get accepted. And I remember being like, my life is ruined. Like I won't be, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's one semester course on big data, which is like, just generally like hardcore statistics. Like, you, yeah. you should probably be studying statistics for like a like years, like not just like yeah. a couple months. To like, yeah, correct, correct, um, correct. I haven't said that. I mean, I think that's the kind of wrong mindset to enter an MBA. Um, what an MBA does, I think, that's beneficial is if you use it correctly, if you leverage it correctly, is that it expands your network. Um, mm. Like that's basically, I think, the biggest plus to doing something at a, um, at a reasonably prestigious school. Um, or I mean, to be fair, I think region to region too. If, if you, for example, are in one state and you just want to stay in that state, um, you're happy to stay in that state, but you just want better opportunities within that state. I think an MBA from like a local university there is a, is a great stepping stone to, to doing that. Right. Um, similar to like, a more, I guess, global or broader level. Um, that's what a more prestigious MBA kind of gets you. Like you're, you're interacting with like presumably really smart, talented people from all over the world and you're connecting with them. And I think the goal is to connect with them in ways that you can mutually benefit each other down the line somewhere. And I think that is, some, I mean, any, good organization that you're a part of should, and I think people are doing that more and more now. Everyone's like, I'm X something, or I'm alum of this. I'm like, I've, yeah, I've, right. I'm connected to, to that. And um, it's the same with an MBA. It's not because um, <clears throat> you're, you're thinking you'll be like some business guru after you take your course. If that's your reason for taking it, it's, um, totally. it's absolutely uh, bullshit. Like that's, that's yeah. not what, what happens there. What it is is to connect with, other people who are ambitious or talented that you wouldn't have had another opportunity to connect with in, in another capacity. I mean, that's a pretty big premium, you could argue, right? Like we're talking, it's not cheap, right? And so, and, and, and I think you already pointed it out. People are kind of doing that already through, I mean, these days technology is a lot more available. Social media is more available. So you can make your own networks. You can sure. make your own things, right? So. Um, I don't know. Do you still feel your, your argument still holds up? Is there something more unique with that network specifically? But like, I feel if I put as much effort and work, you know, I have a very valuable network too. As long as I'm creating and solving hard problems and creating value from solving hard problems and you put a little bit of effort in maintaining it, you build a very valuable network yourself as well. So absolutely for sure. Um, I think, uh, the, that, that's absolutely true with the internet. Um, even with education, right? You don't need to go to Harvard to be like the, like, if you want to study statistics, you can study statistics now online, like YouTube. Yeah. I, I was, <clears throat> I was following some, I forget who it was. Um, it's just some guy doing math problems, like arithmetic up to like algebra two yeah. on YouTube. And, um, he explained it really well there. I was like, I found myself watching it for like a couple hours. I was like, Oh wow. Um, it re refreshes me on all the stuff I had to yeah. learn during high school. And like, 
you could really just pick up all that. If you're just looking to be a master of the concept or something, not even a master, just want to learn the concepts, you don't need to go to somewhere prestigious to do that. Um, the value is more in the network. And like you said, then that network can be replaced with like an online network now with like on Twitter alone. I mean, I'm not a Twitter expert, but like clearly there are many sub communities in twi- in the, in the grand, oh, yeah, for sure. in the grand world of Twitter. That's also divided into like their own sub communities, mm-hmm. right? Like um, for crypto, for example, crypto Twitter is like, big it's it's the place where yeah, most yeah, people yeah. interact and um, same with tech twitter startup twitter vc twitter things like that and i'm sure for things i'm not even interested in there's twitters for that like film twitter baking twitter <laughs> maybe there's a baking twitter i don't know um, i would be surprised um but uh going to an mba is i mean you're putting money down for it's kind of like a supercharging of that right like you said if you wanted right. to do it the the proof of work way like you have to add value. You have to put in your time. You have to grow in your Search community. You. Okay. And MBA is kind of like a, a pre-seed injection to that, I guess. It's like, all right, let's turbocharge this networking. And like, I'm sure to go into yeah. this uh, supposedly great pool of talent that will um, like, uh, it will emerge business partners. It will emerge like colleagues, uh, colleagues, co-founders, maybe even yeah. like significant others, things like that. Like, um, so, would you say then, based off what you're saying, would you say it's a luxury product then? I think a, like a prestigious MBA, like a Harvard MBA, Stanford MBA, um, <laughs> what a, yeah, HEC Paris MBA. Like, um, yeah. yeah, you're you're kind of right. It it it, it is kind of con- it it can be kind of considered as a sort of like luxury good, a luxury product. Um, yeah. yeah, that's 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 kind of an interesting way to put it. <laughs> something to think about at least well anyway for you it's in the past and you have the network so it's already made the investment i mean I'm for, sure for example yeah. like uh i can just expound a little bit more on that like i didn't know anyone in in france before coming here and um ah, that's fair yeah no network um and then france um for <laughs> i don't know if i speak for french people maybe someone will be like uh no not really but um <laughs> france shockingly to me um, uh, to learn was it's a very hierarchical kind of culture country okay. like, they like labels and they like um, prestige mm-hmm. and things like that and so people um, normally or like if you try to like connect with people or things like that they'd be like who are you like why why connect with me ah, but you negotiate yourself with the school if it's a good school like that to I that uh, honestly speaking it's opened a lot of doors for, for things okay. to do. Um, we're having that kind of next to my name, like when I try to access sort of opportunities. So, so to be fair, there are specific hard use cases that have value to it. You just have to have that, I think have that mindset and you have to know what it is to take advantage of it. Yeah, how to, exactly. Sure. I mean, yeah. it's the same yeah. with like startups and VCs in, in the Bay area, right? It's like, um, <clears throat> if you're a talented guy, maybe you'll get some time. You graduate from Stanford? Yeah, sure. Let's take 15 minutes for a coffee, <laughs> like yeah. at least. Yeah, like yeah. I'm not saying just because you went to Stanford, you'll succeed, but it's like um, that's – People give you time. Of, yeah, that's already a badge to say like, all right, yeah. you can at least uh, swing by and let's talk. Yeah. I mean that's what I heard about my friends who have been spending time in the Valley recently. Um, you know, a lot of Americans based in Asia for almost 10 years like me 
because of COVID, they had to go back, right? So, but then, you know, they're starting to spend time back in the Valley and interact. And what they told me is that surprisingly, the most prestigious person will probably give you time as long as you're not wasting it, right? If you have something to say and something to give a value, like they will, like you probably get the ear of someone for at least five to 15 minutes at least, right? So, I mean, that's one of the nice things about the Valley is at least, and I think by force of nature, by function, you know, because of so much FOMO and so much deals they missed out, I think they have to listen to, you know, as many people if it's sounds somewhat legit, right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so like you finished your MBA, then why did you decided to go back right into venture that you started a company called Control P? Like what, what yeah. was going on? Um, what happened with Control P? Uh, what was the lessons? Like, why not just join corporate, make money? Or why, why, why be a poor entrepreneur again? That's true. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, after Rocket, um, there was sort of an innate kind of desire to mm. try to build something again, <clears throat> uh, yeah. try to build something. I mean, it, it, honestly speaking, it was becoming more fashionable to be, I think, yes. like with like yes. the social network and things like the, the movie, everyone was like, yeah. um, wow, like anyone can be a founder <laughs> and like <laughs> anyone can just grow a business on the internet. So like, I mean, the, uh, there's all sorts of kind of allures like that. And um, mostly just also because um, it was a, I mean, there were tech ventures and successful tech businesses built out of France before, but um, just the startup scene in general um, was starting to grow suddenly really quickly. And so it was exciting opportunity Mm -hmm. to try to stay in France. And uh, whereas like you could go back to the States and try to um, be one of the, thousands of guys in, in the Bay Area <laughs> trying to build something. Instead, yeah. you could be one of the hundreds of guys in, in Paris trying to build, in France trying to build Fair something. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. a smaller pool. And I think, um, like, my uh, my skill sets at the early stage um, uh, were something I wanted to kind of test more in different capacities. Um, and so, yeah, uh, it was an interesting time to try to stay. There were a lot of initiatives um, to try to attract foreign talent um, at the time to stay. And that's what I wanted to leverage to stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, was, it was my first foray into... I did my MBA inter- internship at a um, SaaS company, um, a travel, travel tech company um, mm-hmm. called Amadeus. Uh, and it just reminded me that... Um, it wasn't as fun to be in like a large environment. Um, it, it was a great experience. Yeah. I, I, I love yeah, the yeah. opportunity. It's it's like for travel tech, it's it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like the Google of travel tech or something. It's a huge okay. company yeah. and um, great campus, great people, really fun. But just just reminded me that you're just one person in like hundreds, thousands. And like they're really it was really hard to get stuff pushed through. And um, so I did have an interest in SAS. Uh, I, I saw an opportunity um, to try to test a few things. I saw in Asia that might work in Europe because Europe, mm. um, I mean, today it's, it's pretty tech with the smartphone and everything. Everyone's got apps. Everyone's doing stuff. But I guess the, my recollection now is it wasn't like that as much mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. A lot of, anal- especially in France, still a lot of things on paper. Um, old world still yeah it's very bureaucratic very um you know i I don't know if i ever told you this but like living in france really gave me better insight to some of the friction and challenges i experienced in vietnam like regarding (laughs) 
bureaucracy and things like that. <laughs> what the like, French brought, they brought everything, the good and the bad. I feel, I feel like, like I, I was like, I recognize this. Why do I feel like I've experienced this before? It's like, yeah. oh man, it's yeah. just kind of like Vietnam where <laughs> like, yeah, yeah you got to go from person A to B. You got to get some kind of stamp. You get, then you get to take yeah. that stamp. Yeah. Stuff, and it's like, um, that, this place is like the birthplace, the genesis of yes, all yeah. that. And so oh, it's, yeah, a, sure. it's such a paper intensive country. And so I was like, um, uh, and cloud printing was still kind of like growing at the time. It wasn't like um, what it was it today, big. what it yeah. is today. And um, although I, I recently saw that Google cloud print decided, Google decided to shutter its cloud print uh, division mm. product for some reason. So yeah. um, maybe there's an opportunity again. There was a bit of a hole now, um, yeah. but um, they're just really for being such a print intensive country. There really was, there's no kind of culture of like a FedEx or Kinko's here. Mm, um, there was, uh, there's like small copy shops, but then it's like the experience varies from place to place. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the idea was to kind of build a print as a service kind of a uh, product where it was like a combination of things I saw working in Japan and Korea where people kind of um, decentralized the printing process and kind of yeah. let everyone use their spare printing capacity to do printing stuff for you. Oh, interesting. I see. And so, yeah, I was able yeah. to, to, to get a small round on that, like a small pre-seed round, a couple of tens of thousands to, <laughs> to build up that and uh, did a product around that. Um, started at the school, which was easy to, to get access to because um, yeah. um, there was no kind of badge system at the school. At the like in, even when I was in university back in the mid two thousands, like we already had a badge system for printing and everything, but at, in, in the French school, I mean, it's obvious why, I mean, you, the American education system is so much more expensive, like cost intensive. And so like you have all that infrastructure here, it's, it's much cheaper. And so they don't, care as much about the they don't spend as much time on the infrastructure yeah. and so they were still doing things manually on usb sticks from a single computer in like a printing lab where everyone was like backed up so i was like okay this is a good place to start and we set up two printers there um and then we found some traction with like hotels like their business centers mm. like um, yeah. uh but it was just uh i did that for like a year and we were in like maybe 10 locations in Paris um, outside of the schools. And, um, but it was just hard to raise another round after that. Like even just like on notes or something, like nothing like a yeah. bigger seed round, but like a, just the investors um, here are more conservative, more um, they want to see traction, um, which makes sense, right? It's not that yeah, tra traction is wrong, but it's like, to raise like a pre-seed or a seed here is like the kind of traction you would see on an A, a series A kind of investment. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It's like, it's like you want a fully functioning business. It's like, who doesn't, you know, like uh, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're like, give me a five-year projection. Like show me where your sales is going to be. Like what's like the definitive business model. How are you going to like scale okay. year to year? And it's like, well, man, like, um, like, like with the kind of traction you want, like you should, you should be able to justify going to a bank and getting like a small business loan. Like, well, like why, why even go the venture capital route? And I think 
that is something that's still kind of um, weaker in, I can't speak for all of Europe, but France compared to like, for example, the US, like um, at the early stage, there's still a big gap in like series A and beyond. There's some great funds that have like yeah. helped scale some cool companies, but early like stage. the, but like the smaller stage, uh, the earlier stage, uh, um, there's still a gap. Um, and it yeah, either absolutely. you're going to be like an amazing founder that that's super talented, or you've got yeah. some advantages that like people that mm -hmm. like normal people would not have, or, um, like what, what we've done sub subsequently with the that startups I've worked on, we just raised in the U S. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that means that they'll get it better, but I mean, I guess there's gotta be a disconnect of them understanding the European market or they don't care or they just see you as a founder. I, I think it depends on what you're working on. Right. Like, yeah, um, that's true, obviously that's true. if you're like, I'm being, I'm building like an online shoe retailer in France. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Area guy is going to be like, what do I care? <laughs> like that's, yeah, yeah. that's not um, something that, that works. But if you're working on something a little bit more broad, global, um, not necessarily geography specific. Um, more people are, more investors are open to, to um, not just now, it's, just, it's been growingly, increasingly the case where more, I think, investors are open to investing outside, geographically, at least outside the U.S. So some, some cases well, where it's like, yeah. at least incorporate your company in the U.S. Um, yeah, and yeah. We'll, we'll fund you that way. But um, I, I've, I've seen more and more investors open to just straight up funding French entities. I mean, I, I would suspect, and this is my guess only, I'm not really deep in the VC space, but I imagine there's just too much money chasing not enough deals. People getting squeezed out of US, looking for chasing alpha, chasing deals. It's the same effect you see in China. A lot of hyper-aggressive Chinese entrepreneurs and investors, a lot of them have to look for SEA. They expect the kind of same results. Of course, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's because things are just very, you know, I think there's the pool has gotten so much bigger in terms of money and investors. So there's a lot more noise as well. And there's also less yeah. really good deals to chase. So I guess it leads to yeah. a trend of people looking, looking outside to other countries and more sure. broadly. And, and, if, and surprisingly, you know, Americans are shocked. Oh, there's a lot of great people outside of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I say this, but like ultimately it's a return business, right? It's a return based yeah. business. So like, um, obviously I, I say it facetiously, but um, it's not, weird for someone to want more proof of traction you know um that's not yeah, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. necessarily the problem. it's, it's actually more the, like the norm it's good business exactly i guess yeah. the 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 I, I think i don't know how true this is but i've heard a, a french vc like defend himself by saying well like on on average our funds here uh as a whole make better returns versus like u.s based funds where it's like we're happy with our 3x, 4x kind of average returns, whereas, like, in the U.S., I don't know how true this is. Again, I've never compared it myself. So, like, um, you'll get the super home run guys like like Sequoia or something that are, like, yeah. you know, getting a 10x or whatever. And then you'll get guys who are, like, 1.5x or 2x maybe because yeah. no, nothing's popped in their portfolio. Maybe that's the case, but I guess that's the difference in mentality, like um, – some people just want to swing for the fences and and get that home run. Other people are happy batting singles and getting RBIs. You know, 
Well, I mean, it, it depends on on the nature of your 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 fund size and your and who your LP is. Sure, uh, you know, sure. The larger but, your fund gets, you you need to get unicorns. It's you're not going to return any money on on a three X if you have to you know get you know a portion of a billion dollars and three X is not going to cover your billion that you took from your LP, right? So yeah, if you've got um, many yeah, LPs yeah. or something like uh, like yeah. more and more funds have, and I think I guess it's just also what what irks me is like you try to use the VC moniker. I mean, at that point, you're just like a you're not exactly you're a PEF or something. You're a private yeah, equity yeah. guy, and, which is fine. Exactly. That's not a problem. But like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Just yeah. don't try to wear the clothes of a VC guy and just like talk like a VC exactly. guy and be like, yeah, yeah, we love founders. Like, no, like uh, yeah. that's a <laughs> that's a different ball game. That's a different story. And I think um, whatever. At the end of the day, as a founder, your fundamentals need to be right in order to continue Correct. down yeah. your path. But at the same time, I do think there could be more benefit from better early stage infrastructure here. Yeah. So, so then what happened with Control P? Uh, profitable didn't make it, uh, no traction. Then you just decided to form Quidly, or how did that work? No, um, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't going the way um, I wanted in terms of uh, both traction and financing. Like uh, okay. we were building users, we were getting more. Um, we were getting more. Prints, that was one of our metrics, like uh, every thousand prints, things like that. But um, certainly not enough to justify the the business model we were using was um, you could print for free, but we put ads on each uh, on the pages. And so we we sold ads, uh, but it just not nearly at the pace we wanted. Um, And so uh, after about a year and a half, we're like... um, uh, well, we tried. We got. It, it's not like we died out of the gate. Um, we yeah. were able to scale. We just uh, couldn't get the funding we wanted, and we weren't able to like bootstrap more. And my co-founder had lost, lost interest by the time. Um, and so uh, it was time to, uh, you know, um, cut your losses. That's I mean something every founder deals with at some point, right? Um, yeah. Whether you yeah. Want- I mean, so- it sounds like uh, you guys were chasing an idea. You guys were, it wasn't necessarily a, a real pain point that you loved or were passionate about. And uh, I guess it came to a crossroads where it became challenging taking more pain. And uh, because, because of the foundation, maybe it was just better to move on. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's, that's um, fair. I would say um, I, <laughs> I would, I would want to defend myself and say I did become pretty <laughs> passionate on printers for a bit. Like I was looking at yeah. like even like the, of course. the thinness of the paper. Like how could you stock more? Like grams. if you could get even yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. inner <laughs> sheets and stuff like that. But um, no, I mean that I think overall that's a fair um, approximation. Um, and then uh, business school network pays off, right? Um, yeah. I was able to talk with a friend in PE slash VC who had a portfolio company that needed um, someone to help with uh, the company was interested in doing um, cross-border M&A, like international acquisitions. And so, um, yeah, a classmate um, found me a job in a French ed tech company that um, had been around for a bit and uh, they were looking to raise more money in order to do that. They wanted to make some acquisitions to look more kind of robust, um, more international. Mm, And so, yeah, I was with the French ed tech company for a bit, um, helping them uh, uh, identify international targets to okay. um, to acquire. And they ultimately acquired um, one of them uh, nice. in uh, Spain, which was cool. Um, so that, that was actually a very fun gig. Um, 
basically, <laughs> I was paid to identify companies and travel to the different countries to meet with these companies, yeah. get an idea of their situation, get ideas of their financial snapshots. And um, uh, the, the goal was to help the company expand. Um, very cool. Um, very uh, French. It was like my first time 100% French environment, <laughs> okay. which was uh, interesting. Um, uh, but the, I had a, another school classmate, um, who, from, from the MBA who had been, uh, yeah, we, we'd been very close, um, in, in, during the, 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 um, during the MBA, we, um, we had even looked into crypto together. Um, we did a project on Bitcoin at the, this is okay. back in 2013. So during school. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. this is. And this is before the big, really big wave of, of the, the Bitcoin really big rising. wave, yes. But yeah. to be fair, in 2013, it was already quite big. I think um, if I That's recall yeah. correctly, it was already $800 at that point. Um, at, um, well, compared to where we are now, and even at the, the, the first peak, right? I mean, it's still nothing. <laughs> I mean, the fact that it even got up to $800 is amazing to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, we, we were super close on that. We did a project on that. Um, we'd always been interested in doing startups together. Um, and he, uh, you know, he, he was, he came from an engineer background. Um, I came from like doing the business stuff, startup stuff before. And we, we really on personal levels felt like we clicked. So we stayed in touch. He, um, I did my startup. He did his own startup, um, mm. um, which ultimately, uh, became a YC company and oh, nice. he okay. built it up to, um, a seed level, um, they closed their seed and then he left. Um, huh. What happened? Uh, I think he, he, he according to him, I, I don't know the internals, but like it was, I, I, at least his description to me was quite um, admirable. Um, he realized he wasn't skilled enough to go past that. Like he built it up to that mm -hmm. point, but he, he, he was the CTO for this company. And the way he explained it was everyone they subsequently hired after was much more talented than him. And like, he was not as like necessary anymore. And he felt like, um, he was, uh, more of a barrier. And so he, he, he wanted to do an early stage thing again. And, um, he was like, have you been checking out crypto, uh, these days? Uh, remember Bitcoin and, <laughs> and, and we like, we looked and it's like, it's crazy. It was, at that point was the crazy peak time. It, yeah. it, um, it hit the 20 K plus yeah. um, all time high. And um, then like uh, all the other kind of, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the ICOs. Like yeah, of course. The, the that, that, at the time that was the craze. Yeah. The token sales and like yeah. all the, all the ventures being built on, on the back of that were like, Fuck VCs. We don't need VC any money anymore. We're just going to do token yeah, yeah, sales. Yeah, yeah. And, like, correct, and this correct. will be the way to build businesses in the future. And, um, uh, we, I mean, we, we, so during the NBA, we took like entrepreneur stuff together and there was like a big dynamic on like how like the, the professor there like spent a lot of time focusing on like, like the foundings of the company itself in terms of like ownership and th things like that structure. And so it was a big, it was a big topic that he emphasized and something that we spent a lot of time ourselves kind of like, what's the best way to do like 
ownership in a company. It's so easy to just be like, for like a layman, it's like, oh, I came up with the idea. I own 100% of the company. Maybe yeah. you help me build it. I'll give you 5% or something. And it's like, yeah. it's so arbitrary. Like people will try to give yeah. you best practices. Like, Correct. Like if you're a founder, you need to make sure or like at least all the founders earn or own like whatever percentage um, that's ideal. Yeah. And then like, then yeah. you need to be careful about how you like, how you distribute like afterwards. And it's like, all that is arbitrary if your company ends up not amounting to anything. You just, you yeah, create right. like additional stress on yourself and right. resentment and tensions for something that in at least that exact moment means nothing. Like yeah, to right. really re reap the rewards of something you build, it, it's much later on, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, we saw tokens and blockchain as a way to kind of um, create more, uh, equitable structures or equitable like ways of distribution that would um that would make that i mean you were seeing that with the tokens itself like with bitcoin like the way it was being given out ultimately the people who held on to it like the strong believers or the lucky guys who just forgot about it yeah, um, yeah. they get rewarded they get co um, compensated for their beliefs yes. um and that's kind yeah. of how shares are at its core, right? Um, yeah. Like it's the people that added value and were um, were lucky enough or confident enough to hold on to that value that end up getting rewarded. And we we saw parallels to that with um, tokenization and blockchain, and decided to try to um, build a company. Yeah, exactly. Build a product around that uh, from from a not just a token perspective, but from a real legal perspective, like um, adding a legal layer to that that would um, create equity. On a, Sorry, on are a you talking? Are, are you talking smart contracts then, or you mean the legal layer? Yeah. Um. So I mean, just to get into the weeds a little bit, I don't want to get in too much, but I mean, a smart contract is basically the token and how you operate things on a blockchain network like Ethereum, not Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't have smart yeah. contracts, but a smart contract itself is not necessarily like a contract in like the legal framework sense. It's more the, um, it's more how you build programmability on a blockchain. Like the smart okay. contracts are how you do like if then kind of things and and yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the build interactions and transactions um, on a yeah. smart contract based blockchain like Ethereum. Yeah. Um, the legal when we say legal layer, we mean like actual legal contract, like paper, oh, okay. see, paper legal kind of documentation that actually gives someone some form of right or claim to something. So yeah, it does get kind of confusing when you get smart contract, normal contract yeah. thing, but not the same thing at all. We're, yeah. we're putting a contract on a smart contract. Yeah. So the, the, the main issue with that, that I guess, cause you're also, when you're, when you're founding basically the beginning of Quidly, this was your initial hypothesis of how you would like to probably approach the space and solve a problem and create a product. Right. Uh, yeah. But I think that that was very early on because I think one of the biggest problems today is tying the physical world to the actual blockchain, right? Like it's, I think you're dealing with regulators at that point and then you're talking about people actually buying and believing it and people actually adopting it, right? So, I mean, um, did you have ideas around how to solve that or were you just too early and maybe overly optimistic? <laughs> um, no, that's a good, uh, that's a good um, question. Um, 
I would say a combination of a lot of things. I think we're, we are still early in terms of um, just yeah. um, tokens and blockchain in general. In, yeah. Excuse me, uh, digital currency, cryptocurrency, things like that. But having said that, in a general sense, I think it really does have a value proposition and it really does have problems. It's it's not just like a, it's not like ICO times where it's like just slap a blockchain on it. It's like, yeah, let's run a hotel right. on top of like blockchain technology because yeah. like you can have like yeah. full transparency on who, yeah. on either who owns it or who's allowed to be a guest or some shit like that. Correct. That yeah. kind of stuff I think is BS. But like, I mean, just in terms of like digital currency in general, like it totally makes sense to have a distributed ledger that's managing like the distribution and transactions of, um, of financial transactions. Like um, <clears throat> more and more transactions are done online or done digitally, not done with like legal tender, like physical legal tender that, yeah. that's being done. Um, it makes sense to try to transition into a more digital economy um, to more kind Ooh. of, why? Because it's more efficient, uh, more efficient, more, more co- yeah. cost wise. Yeah, cost wise, uh, security okay. wise. Um, yeah, I mean, you get into different philosophical arguments. If you take a decentralized post uh, approach, it's like it's your money, and you should be able to do whatever the hell you want with it. Like no one should be able to censor your money, quote unquote. <laughs> you can that also possible <laughs> I mean, technically today with Bitcoin, that's already the case. It's just a matter of who accepts. Just it. the regulators won't allow it, though. I think uh, at a regulation level, yes, but at a P two P level, um, of course, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally possible. It's, yeah. yeah, it's literally, yeah, yeah, it's literally possible. You're right. Yeah, um, yeah. But even from a centralized approach, even if you don't take a decentralized approach, it makes sense because um, we more and more are living in a global world. Um, Sometimes the financial system internationally is highly impeded and it d- disadvantages people from like less developed regions uh, just to do like simple wire transfers or bank transfers just to just to hold money um, and creating like a digital space for that is significantly more efficient, significantly more. Um, I, I hate to be cliche because it's something that a lot of crypto people say and still not realized, but there needs to be a way to bank <laughs> the good proportion of the world that's not banked, like the unbanked. Okay. So why, and, why blockchain versus other older technology that's already working? That uh, just because of the fact that there should be transparency and better accountability for money. Like if you're just using like a normal database, a normal like MySQL or a Postgres database, like that can be okay, redundant, or that can yeah. be like you can just fuck with that immediately. You can like, yeah, uh, you yeah, can yeah, yeah. you can easily manipulate that kind of stuff. But if you're doing it on okay. a distributed basis, whether it's a completely decentralized distributed basis or a more controlled like internal node distributed basis, um, it's harder to create like um, uh, I don't know, like uh, what do you call it? Fraud. It's harder to do yeah. fraud it's like that. And so it makes sense. It totally makes sense in a, from simply, not even crypto, simply from a currency point of view to start applying uh, blockchain technology towards uh, monies. Um, I think you, I, I definitely became very attuned to the pains from living abroad for so long. I've been outside the States mm. for <clears throat> since 2007. So like yeah. more than 10 years now approaching mm. 13, 14 years. Um, and it's probably the single 
biggest pain I've experienced, like moving assets oh, from course, one region yeah. to another. That's true. Um, that's true. <clears throat> from different financial systems to another, from different banks to another. Um, and <clears throat> I've never experienced something as frictionless as crypto in that sense, like where I can uh, make those transactions without having to worry about like, is my bank going to let me do it? Is the other bank going to recognize my transaction? Like, will I get That's like the point? How many intermediary fees am I going to have to pay to do like maybe it's a different currency to a different currency? Like, um, there's a ton of for the speed at which we live in in this globalized world today. There's a ton of inefficiencies in how we let our money be uh, managed and, and distributed. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point because I never thought of it in that kind of context. That is a huge pain point I have. And I guess that also that ties to a very hard, tangible uh, value that people could be benefits from. Uh, but at the same time, I guess it's tied to the older institutions and frictions that exist purely by the complexities of the systems, the, the laws, the, the politics, the, the inherent dangers for consumers, you know, like uh, the, the nefarious agents playing it also in the same systems, you know, from like uh, illegal <laughs> money, gray market money laundering, right? So. I mean, I guess sure. there's reasons why, why they exist. And so I guess like, you know, it's all good idea with, you know, philosophy and ideas of what you're saying. It's, it's true, no doubt. But then, you know, where, where does the intersect meet of tangibility and, and feasibility? And then it starts becoming more mainstream. I think, honestly speaking, that's still something that's being figured out, right? I don't know if crypto people like to hear things like that, <clears throat> but I think yeah. there, it's still something being figured out. But I mean, everything you said before, I think it's, it, it's true. It holds water, but at the same time, <clears throat> that exists whether with or without crypto. Like that exists That's with true. the system yeah. today. That exists with uh, yeah. currency today. That exists with money today. Um, I think one thing, uh, the one thing that crypto people like to point out. I think rightfully, it's hilarious. Everyone's like, "Oh, Bitcoin! It's <clears throat> it's for like drugs and illegal deeds." Like there is <laughs> the the uh, the crazy um, Silk Road story where like the the founder purportedly tried to hire an assassin to kill somebody yeah, using yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like yeah, that sucks. That's terrible. But like that also happens with actual like real like fiat That's currencies true. like yeah. dollars and things like that. Like you're not yeah. stopping yeah. it or making it um, any less plausible um, by by denying crypto. I think there's a lot more advantages in, in, from the money perspective I'm talking about. Um, there's a lot of yeah. other things you can do with a blockchain database, but like yeah. um, purely from a money perspective, there's a lot of things you can benefit from, from using crypto yeah. networks. And I guess that's the perfect segue because you, you had this initial idea of, I guess, uh, more transparent equity for founders and companies on a blockchain, which I guess you tested out probably an MVP but yeah. eventually you kind of pivoted that away into what Quidly is now today, right? So so kind of what happened yeah. and what is, Quid, what is Quidly now? Yeah, so we started doing like equity and blockchain stuff, um, equity on blockchain stuff. And uh, I think it was a, um, a, like you mentioned earlier, like why did we pivot? Like was it just like timing? Was I think it's a variety of a lot of stuff, timing included, maybe the, the – um, uh, also the implementation, like our own, our own way of going about it. Um, to me, it's not a question of if it will work. It's more when, because I think whether we do it so or not. Actually, it, 
Are, are you a true believer then? Does this, this mean like for the rest of your life, you're only going to be dedicated to blockchain and because you know uh, it's going to happen? Uh, I, I mean more like um, putting like assets and securities on like a distributed ledger basis. I okay. think that's it's something just, that yeah, will... Just timing. Yeah, it will happen. There's no reason okay. for it not to happen. It's absolutely kind of ludicrous that it's still done like on a pen and paper way when it can be more yeah. digital. And yeah. uh, when it needs to be digital, there needs to be more transparency and accountability. So, like, it's 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 a great tool for doing that. I, wouldn't, I don't want to go as far as to say it's the perfect tool, but it is a logical next extension of a tool for for managing things like that. Um, there's just there were various kind of frictions in terms of like the product we built and the users we worked with. Um, we use it ourselves. Um, you can still check out. We have our database up um, and. Uh, with an interface for people to publicly take a look at how we distributed equity and how we use the tool. Mm, um, but what we found were like a few examples of why we, we stopped was uh, one, um, there was just too much user friction for people to use blockchain based tools because to access okay. like the blockchain, like you can't, it's, it's not just like connecting to like an AWS kind of system or something like, uh, like no. you need to, you need to actually, be able to engage with the cryptography and so you need different like extensions and tools on, into your browser that will give you that access and it just wasn't like i see the, so the infrastructure is not there yet basically yes and no it is there but too much too, i mean too little for like mainstream use i would say um, why, why not why not just build the infrastructure then I think that was that 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 that's a great um, comment. I think that was an option for us to take. Um, that's something yeah. we vigorously debated internally. We oh, could okay. have see. continued to be um, an infrastructure company. I think, and I think the guys who stayed in that space—that's essentially what they're doing now, kind of pioneering yeah. um, right. and waiting for like that tipping point. I, I, I think that's a viable strategy and um, yeah. something that I we mean, could have done. The, the, I think we ultimately. Yeah. So I said the previous episode um, before I, this one was was with the CoinGecko founder. So I think that's oh, you did perfect. talk to them. Yeah. So the, uh, I, it's going to be a few weeks till I launch it because I'm like backlogged like crazy. But uh, it was a very good episode, and that's the perfect example of infrastructure and timing. Like, yeah, it was just like they they just you know it was a side project, and whenever you know Bitcoin took off, you know then it became like really serious, and they started full time, then it dropped again, but then like now it's back up again, right? So. Yeah. Oh, those guys. I know. It's like it's like you said. It's a valid strategy, you know. It's a great story. Those guys, like, um, I'm sure. I, I don't know their internals. I don't know what's going on. But like, yeah. A reason I use CoinGecko regularly now, and like, um, yeah. one of the big, at least the way I see, I saw the story was like, I didn't give a shit about CoinGecko. Um, there was already right. a leading solution, Coin Marketplace, Coin Market Cap, and Coin Market Cap. Uh, yeah, sorry. And it, it's great. I mean. It was, to nuts and bolts, it's the exact same thing as CoinGecko, but like um, suddenly it was that guy ended up getting acquired by one of the largest crypto Finance. companies. And yeah. man, damn man, you're like an expert now in this field. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and, I know a little bit. And uh, suddenly, that um, that what do you call it? The 
ethics were kind of called into question if the largest exchange the chinese company bought it people don't trust them yeah and data data you know yeah god suddenly coin gecko just it's not that it was like the best i mean i'm not slagging on those guys i'm just generally speaking it's not the best user experience it's not it's not something that it does uniquely better than the other it's just really positioned well suddenly to be like yeah look we're not affiliated with this giant Chinese Correct. marketplace. Like yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're giving you like in the really independent information. Yeah. And sure enough, Bitcoin Gecko is one of my browser tabs. Now I don't go to, yeah. I don't go to coin market cap anymore. I mean, and, and when I did talk to him from day one, they're never going to compromise that value or that virtue about their company. So that's always like paramount with the transparency issue. Uh, hey, I mean, Chris, I know. Who, who knows when, we, when the money appears? Like, Coin Market Cap yeah. got acquired for like a couple hundred million, I think. Uh, yeah, it was like four hundred million. It wasn't a yeah. small deal. Like, yeah, yeah. correct, correct. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Uh, um, maybe if someone offers them for talk to them again after someone. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, but but also to be fair, one of my friends, uh, which I think actually next week he's going to be on as a guest. Uh, he's a crypto trader, so he spends half the time as a crypto trader. Nice. The other half, he's a CTO for a SaaS company, but. He uses uh, CoinGecko because of the APIs are very good for building his own dashboards and customizing. And yeah. he said specifically he chose that over Coin Market Cap, aside from you know the dodgy acquisition <laughs> he doesn't like uh, as well. Of course, everyone doesn't trust the Chinese for some reason. We're about but, um, yeah, but that's uh, stuff on our side. Very nice, very nice. Yeah. Okay, so what what is the quick elevator pitch of uh, Quidly now? So what did it eventually become, and then uh, why yeah, should we I mean, use it? So, um, quick elevator pitches. It's basically, um, it's, uh, it's a, it's a crypto, it's a shared crypto wallet that you can use for groups. And we position it for remote teams who can then use it to do, um, international transfers of value quickly, efficiently, cheaply. We, we position it as perks, incentives, but I mean, I see. Okay. Yeah. 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 But that's the main use case first for now and the main niche you're focusing on. That's where we found the most success. Like there's two yeah. points where we found traction today is with remote teams. And for, um, I think we see it for like, cause some of them we can't connect with directly. We try and reach out, we, we don't connect, but I suspect some of them are just personal accounts as well. Like, uh, they're, they have very little sub wallets, like, um, team member wallets and they're, um, they're just buying and holding and doing stuff. And okay, so, basically, um, so yeah. So basically, it's a it's a it's a Bitcoin. I'm oh, sorry, it's a it's a cryptocurrency wallet that you could use to basically put. Uh, you could transfer real like real fiat money into crypto coins, uh, a currency of your choice, and then you could. The main use case that you're seeing now is people are actually paying remote workers in these coins. Yeah, yeah. Well, we initially started. We didn't have any of that kind of verbiage. We were just like, all right, we had this hosted wallet system from our um, from our equity platform mm -hmm. the biggest thing that people were doing we we know and we feel passionately that compensation for employees is something that's always really poorly done like it needs to I be see. something that's improved yeah. and whenever we mentioned we were a blockchain solution blockchain based solution people are like oh like bitcoin I, i'd like i'd love to get some bitcoin things like that people yeah. are always looking for ways to earn more bitcoin and yeah. um we were like, screw it. Let's just uh, swap out the equity tokens and, and just put in Bitcoin. Let's see what happens. And we launched it. We, we shared it on a few sites. And we noticed that people were like, oh, I have a remote company or I have like a freelancer I work with. And um, I hate paying these crazy intermediary fees just to give them like a few hundred or a few yeah. thousand. I'll use this to um, 
I'll use this to pay them in Bitcoin. And so slowly we saw that there's a real val- a real hard value proposition in terms of doing smaller kind of micro transactions of value to people in different areas and to like yeah. where it doesn't need to be localized. And yeah, so right. we started adding um, different, uh, we started, we then went beyond Bitcoin. We started adding um, Ethereum based tokens, like um, stable coins, ones that are yeah. fixed to dollars. And um, we see that more and more people have, uh, are realizing that kind of pain today. I mean, you see, Coincidentally, this past week, you saw um, both Stripe and I don't know if you know Mercury. Um, it's a oh, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. it's an online challenger bank in the U.S. for businesses. Okay, not, and yeah. and like more and more people want to manage their money the way they want to manage their money, not the way yeah. banks want them to manage Correct. their money. And that was kind of like a similar case with people doing international transactions to their team members. Um, it's like. Well, we could use these existing solutions like Western Union or PayPal or even like I really like TransferWise and even TransferWise, but there's still some. I have a free- terrible experience with them. I, I can't get approved. My KYC, like I literally take perfect pictures and they still won't approve it for some reason. So TransferWise? I gave up. Yeah, TransferWise. Wow. You know, it's the one yeah, so- I, I, I never feel bad. I, I mean, I like I never feel bad talking about about PayPal because. Like there's like this giant machine that really does not care about you. TransferWise, I've always like, I always, um, personal experiences have always been really good with it, but there's still like friction points because it's dealing with, it's like all FinTech today, right? The problem is when you do it on top of legacy financial uh, tools, you just can't avoid the, 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 the sort of limitations that the bank set on you already. Whereas with like crypto networks, it's entirely new. It's it's entirely being built from scratch, built for like yeah. the digital economy. So you yeah. you are really leveraging the efficiencies of these kind of networks to kind of do the do the transaction services faster, yeah. more efficient, more like same day as opposed to even transfer wise. Yeah, like Mac, like best case scenario, maybe two days. Worst yeah. case scenario, like a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which is quite long. Yeah, um, and so and we, I, and we, I, we saw that traction building, and so we've just really we started we changed the positioning to like remote teams, and we're just building that up right now. Yeah, and I, I mean I could att- definitely attest to it because the reason why we reconnected was you, you wanted me to help test the actual payments, right? So, and and it's very easy. So uh, you just put your credit card in, and then I literally was holding Bitcoin like a second later, right? And um, so I, I felt that was that's quite a, a very good proposition so i, I the, the thing is you can get money into your wallet and you're holding crypto can i get it back in fiat somehow uh, through us no um at the moment okay. we we don't offer that but it's your crypto you can you can take it off Move to it. exchange if you want and okay so um, i would need then, to go to exchange yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, that, that depends convert, on yeah sorry so go ahead for us to convert it into into money back again um, would pose a, a few challenges that we're not ready to face right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, we do offer ways for you to use it um, directly integrated into the into the application. Like uh, we have an inter- e-commerce integration where you can swap your Bitcoin for like um, credit uh, or gift cards from like a, yeah. a bunch of brands and vendors um, across the world. Um, like you can get an Amazon gift card, you can get an Airbnb credit, you can get like 
DoorDash points, yeah. blah blah blah. Um, I, I feel or like you can just hold it. Yeah. If you could scale that, if you could scale the use cases, I, I would feel very comfortable uploading a lot more money into the actual Bitcoin and using it as a way to transfer money from country to country instead, right? Because I mean, I, I see your point, you know, you can't just, you need a license to get an exchange and then you have to set up all the follow the protocol, do KYC. It's a lot of infrastructure and tech to build, um, which I mean, I guess there's, there's so many exchanges like uh, CoinGecko has over 400 exchanges already listed, I think, right? So, yeah. Um, I mean, what's so cool, I think, you, know, you can send it yeah. to someone without even a bank account necessary, right? Like if you wanted to yeah. give someone 20 bucks, you yeah, can correct. send it to them. And, and that's think, what you did to me the other day. <laughs> and I think when you bought it, um, you bought some Bitcoin, uh, you must be at least double by now. Uh, I mean, I you didn't buy that. You're not like a. I didn't buy much though, but but it exploded after that test though. Yeah, I got lucky. It's not retirement money, but like so. Uh, but at the same time, like it's like if you're into that kind of thing, the speculation is great, and it's a it's a it's it's a growing asset that that's yeah. become more yeah. and more accepted by financial institutions. If you're not into that kind of thing, just do it with a stable coin. Like it'll stay in the value. It's tied to the dollar or something. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we have a ton of integrations that help you, like um, not all the currencies yet, but um, some of the currencies you you leave parked in your wallet will even um, will even help you accrue interest on it, like at rates that are better than banks that most banks offer. Right. I don't know how it's like in Asia these days, but in Europe and the U.S., like a savings account will only get you like less than one percent, like on top of yeah. like what you. What's the incentive to hold your your cash in, in these institutions. If, for example, in France, they even charge you to hold it and huh. your interest is not offsetting that at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think there's like a ton of incentives to, at least if you're not all in, at least experiment with some of the crypto networks around today and, and see how you can better leverage this kind of growing alternative form of finance. Yeah. Well, like what I'm really excited about and what I, I like what I'm hearing from you is that if you could scale the reduce the frictions and you open up more doors of how I could use the actual crypto, man, like I have way more incentive to keep uploading more and, and then I'd be open to more speculation Then like you could build more infrastructure for more financial products on crypto. Right. So, I mean, it's, I think it's a very pretty exciting future that I, I had no clue about before talking to you and then getting more into talking to people around. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's very positive. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, you, you kind of pivoted and then somewhere along the story, you raised money to us for this, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm speaking frankly, I think um, it's one of those kind of like, you know, there's always everyone wants like a, a surefire kind of when you invest, you want something that seems surefire, right? You want something that's traction based. Yeah. But at the same time, there's always like trends, there's always fads. And so yeah. I would say the first check we got was definitely. Um, more driven by like the the fad Trend. of blockchain. Yeah, okay. uh, which, I mean the the first investor we had is a um, a, um, a a blockchain venture studio. Uh, like they're the okay. oh, venture studio. Yeah, okay, based in Europe, right? No, no, no. no. Uh, well, I think that company is actually incorporated in Switzerland, but their their operations are mostly out of the U.S. Uh, like they're based in. That New would York. be the consensus. Consensus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, they're a big institutional in the world of ethereum the ethereum blockchain I see. the, the I founder see. is one of the founders of the ethereum blockchain and um he's they're they're all very super committed to um to uh, building out that ecosystem building out the 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 sort of infrastructure necessary to kind of do more things 
mainstream on blockchain. Um, we we um, threw their Tachyon Accelerator, which was a great experience. If I can plug them here, I guess um, yeah, we were able to it. get we were able to get our first check. Um, great team, great um, great uh, vibe for blockchain projects that are looking to kind of get off the ground. Um, and then we hooked up with uh, SOSV and Emergo. Uh, um, SOSV is a more traditional um, investor um, through their accelerators. And um, um, Emergo is another blockchain um, studio, um, not Ethereum-based on the Cardano blockchain. Um, and they've been very good um, supporters of kind of the mission of just the overall mission of like improving transactions that focus on compensation that focus mm-hmm. on incentivization, okay. things that help okay. kind of workers. Oh, is the internet connection bad? Things that help. Oh, it's um, okay. Yeah. Things that help workers uh, kind of, you know, do get value faster for the value they put in. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, so it sounds like you had some really good partners. I mean, there's some pretty big names. Um, and uh, I guess the, I mean, the mostly through the accelerator. So, but are, are, are you having continued relationships? Are they helping you actively or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we're super always pleased um, with the team. I mean, SOSV is a very seasoned uh, group yeah, of yeah. Um, um, the VC accelerators and the, the, the whole kind of model and the team is like, it's not just kind of come in for a couple months and, um, and, <clears throat> and uh, you know, like work in a fancy office space. It's more like, um, like, those guys in particular are really like um, family. We talk with them every day, good sounding boards, um, very good advice, uh, always, always making themselves available to kind of help us test theses and, 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 and build up our roadmaps. Um, Emergo and consensus as well. I mean, in the world of crypto and blockchain, um, it's, it's still a very fragmented and kind of anonymous world. So it's, yeah very helpful to be tied to these like known entities, known quantities in, in this space that um, give us legitimacy. Cause for the average, we, we're not, our product is not really geared towards hardcore crypto enthusiasts, right? <laughs> we're yeah, not, yeah, um, yeah. it's not the type of product that's necessarily like, we don't need a bank. Like the banks are, are terrible. <laughs> like it, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I would say it's more like, um, for a lot of people, it's like training wheels to get into crypto. Um, how to kind of get more acquainted with the with the basic functions and parts. And um, I mean, they help us um, add a lot more legitimacy in that in that sense. Definitely, definitely. And uh, so, uh, I want to probably wrap up with the last question, I guess, and then uh, then I, I'll, you can give some plugs after that. So. What maybe for Quidly or maybe crypto broadly, either one, what is the biggest misconception that you think that needs to be addressed or solved around for the crypto space, blockchain space? The biggest misconception? Like something I think that people should know that they just don't. I mean, I think still the a big barrier is like for average person, like if there is any association at all to cryptocurrencies, it's that it's like tied towards like that Silk Road kind of stuff of like drugs and illicit yeah. activities and yeah, things like yeah. that. And um, I mean, that's not to say that's not true. That certainly did happen. Um, but at the same time, like that should not be the only association tied to crypto or blockchain. Like it, it should be, yeah. it should just be considered like 
something that did happen, but uh, that's not as, I guess, family friendly, but at the same time, like, um, <clears throat> certainly not the only use case. Uh, the other thing is I think you really should think about your relationship with finance to all institutions. I, I said earlier, I'm not, I'm not a, the banks must die kind of guy, but at the same time, like let's, let's honestly think about like, particularly in the 21st century, as we go more and more digital, like what are the services that our financial institutions are offering to us? Are they necessarily fair or as inclusive as they can be? Like some would argue that it's about accessibility, um, that it's about, I mean, having a bank account is not at its core something you need to live, but to live in like a modern society, it's such an important part of like, um, uh, of how, of how you manage your finances and that impacts how you live. And it seems like a lot of, um, a bank has not changed since like it was introduced in like the mid, like, yeah. I don't know, the mid like 16th century. So when was the first bank? Some Italian bank, I think like, back yeah, in, like the 16th way, way back then even and, before that probably. And what's really changed. It's still just some place that holds your money uh, for a fee. And uh, it's supposed to incentivize you ideally by like, I don't know, either keeping your money safe or letting you earn interest on like what they hold. Yeah. And what's really changed since then. Um, uh, so I think that's something people should think about their relationship, not in relationships necessarily that are about like, how do I get more rich? But it's like, Mm. how does my bank, how does my financial institution really help me? And I think that's something you can really reinvent a lot with crypto, like more than any other kind of fintech. Cause like I said earlier, like a lot of fintech today is just putting lipstick on a pig just because you have some like beautiful UI (laughs) UX on top of um, to, to, to make an app it's still being run on the back end by legacy like banking systems. And so you're still kind of prisoner to that, um, to that old kind of system. And whether you see that system as good or bad, it doesn't matter. We're in the 21st century. It needs to be digitized. It needs to be more efficient. And if that's the case, why not reinvent it in a way that's more inclusive, like give better interest rates to maybe someone that's not a high net worth individual, Mm -hmm. give a, give better financial products and access to loans without necessarily being predatory. Um, let mm-hmm. people make transactions without like really meaningless intermediary fees and things that yeah. don't yeah. add value. Cause ultimately for the banks, you, you get, you get to hold that money and that should be a real privilege. And I think um, yeah. it's not something that normal FinTech can address. Cause again, that's just window dressing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the banks are smart, they'll probably get on top of it. If not, uh, you better watch your back too, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, or, yeah. At least at the Bitcoin level, you're seeing more institutionals getting involved, True. at least from like a hedging and a treasury yes, standpoint. Yeah. They're using it to either kind of maintain their 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 value levels or to maybe, maybe grow with the swings that are happening. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's like... Um, how do we let that trickle down to normal people again? Like not just your high net worth people. I mean, that's a beautiful, bold picture for the future. And, and I love the, the space you're in. What you're, so the more people I talk to this, the more bullish I become on it, the more I start to understand a little bit better. And, you know, I, I definitely think, uh, you know, it's something that's going to, you're going to be benefit from in the next 10, 15, 20 years for sure. So 
so before we wrap up, do you want to plug anything, anything we need to know about Quidly or what you're working on or anything new coming up? No. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, sure. I would love to plug Quidly. Um, of course. Uh, please, uh, if you are looking to get involved at all, get any kind of exposure into crypto, notably uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum-based ones. I mean, we're not in the, specula- the huge speculation market. We're not doing every single token. But if you want to get some kind of easy, light exposure to, um, to, uh, to initiate into crypto, please uh, check out Quidly. Um, we make it as easy as possible for you to either buy or deposit or crypto you already earn into a very manageable interface that you can then use to share with your friends, family, colleagues, teammates, uh, whatever, community members, as well as use. Like That's something that a lot of people don't do yet in crypto, um, but it's at the end of the day, it's cryptocurrency, it's crypto money. So... Yeah. Um, Maybe, uh, maybe instead of doing it, uh, using it for like weird things or things you would never be able to do before, use it like a normal person, like use it to spend, use it to donate, use it to, to share with others, um, to get, get that first experience on Quidly, please. Um, I, you'll include the link, I guess. Yeah, definitely. We'll include all the links. Um, <laughs> I, I will attest to the experience. I mean, it honestly, it's like a gateway drug. It, it was very easy to own it. And then I saw it rise really fast. Um, you know, and then of course, like I said, if you give me more use cases, I definitely put more money on, but it's a great, it's been a great experience. It's still early. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a product in development, but I think it's getting better every week, every day. Um, so yeah. Justin, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No, it was really fun, man. Uh, thanks for yeah. uh, making, I, I don't know if all the podcast experiences were like this, but it was my first one. It was great. I'm waiting okay. for uh, Spotify to offer me my own uh, contract. Um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, please. Uh, happy. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. And if you ever need anything, let yeah. me know. For sure. We'll definitely have you back on for another episode in the future. Cool. Yeah, do a crypto okay. episode. Exactly. Purely crypto. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Justin. All right, dude. Cheers. Hey, listeners. Thanks for listening to another episode of EOA. As usual, if you liked the stories, if you learned something, don't hold back share it, spread the love. Write a review as it helps us a lot. Because of your help, EOA is fast growing to top spots in a few categories across Malaysia. Let's see how far we can take this across the world together. So what did I learn today? The world is big and small at the same time. Justin is the epitome of globalization in a positive way. Him being both American and Korean hasn't held him back in the slightest as he's making waves from Paris while raising a family while building out his cryptocurrency startup Quidly. Exposure, exposure, exposure. For yourself, for your friends, for your kids, for your family. This is what you're looking for if you want to grow. Exposure and being different has served Justin very well. If you heard his full story, you know it was not a straightforward path. Aside from the very tangible lessons such as bootstrapping for as long as you can, hiring for generalists with strong potential for early stage startups, and learning more languages, Justin's mindset of not letting external factors define him and drive him are what really served him on his journey through entrepreneurship, which was clearly rooted in him just being himself growing up and not some minority or cultural stereotype. I hope you guys learned something too. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.